Hello and welcome to the Canadian Wargamer Podcast. Yes, it's the Canadian Wargamer podcast featuring two affable and youngish granddads, Mike and James, talking about primarily miniature wargames and the occasional hex and counter excursion from Mike from our unique perspective in the Great White North. And as the strains of La Foy d'Arabla die away, here are your hosts, Mike and James. Hey folks, welcome to episode 15 of the Canadian Wargamer podcast. It's amazing to think that we have reached 15 episodes and that uh, people are um, bored enough to uh, watch them. And we know they are because every now and then you leave us comments and we're really grateful for that. So episode 15 tonight, we are uh, reaching across the Ontario-Quebec border to La Belle Provence. And we are talking to uh, our very good friend, uh, Pierre-Yves. And we're going to call him PY tonight. PY, welcome to the podcast. Salut, P.Y. Yeah. Thank you very much, guys. Bienvenue à la podcast uh, Wargamer Canadien. Whoa, dude. Like, I used up all my French. Thanks, <laughs> yeah. So, P.Y., when, when I was in the Army, I had um, two years of taxpayer-paid French. You wouldn't okay. know it. You wouldn't know it. And every time I'd try to speak to my uh, Quebecois colleagues in French, they would just come back to me in English. And I'd say, why do you do that? And they'd say, uh, they'd say either, well, because your, your French hurts my ears or because I don't have time. <laughs> I don't have time to sort you out. So anyway, so we're going to do this all in English. But anyway, bienvenue, PY. Thank you very much. Merci beaucoup. Yeah, we're really delighted to have you. And um, one of the things we want to talk about tonight is your uh, amazing uh, cowboy game at Hot Lead. You came all the way from uh, Montreal to uh, Stratford. And yes. when uh, this morning when I posted on Twitter and said, uh, James and I are going to be talking to you, people were like, oh my God, I want, to, I want to know more about that game and I want to know more about the cool 3D stuff that you printed. So we will get to that very shortly. Yeah, so just to be clear, this is not my game. It's uh, John Savage from uh, the Two Fat Lardies. So yeah, I want yeah. to clear that up. I'm just uh, part of the playtesting, so that's why. But I... you brought it You brought it to... Uh, yeah, yeah. So, you are an apostle of lard. That's, that's right. right. I that's am, right. You uh, are a, a servant to the lard. Uh, a lard evangelist. Mm-hmm. So we'll get to that. Lard. We'll get to the game in a minute. Yeah, praise the lard. We'll yeah, get to that in a minute. Um, but first, we're going to do what we do with uh, all of our guests, and we're just going to ask you to say a little bit about yourself, your wargaming biography, um, when you got started, uh, what you like to play, you know, who you are, just whatever you want to tell us, man. So I'm actually French. I'm from France. I'm from Brittany. So um, I uh, moved to Quebec 20 years ago now. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so I mean, uh, I think I started the usual route for people my age, which would be, uh, you know, Games Workshop would be the gateway uh, drug at the time. So I think my first encounter with Game Workshop stuff was probably 1989 or 88. Uh, Stuff like, um, well, actually, 
mostly uh, before that, it was Milton Bradley. You know, they had bought some of the licenses, um, not bought, but uh, they, they produced games in conjunction with Games Workshop at the time, which were Hero Quest, obviously. And uh, there was another game uh, called Space Cruiser. I don't know okay. if you're familiar with it. It's like uh, it's like a board game with Space Marines and uh, there's a bunch of Orcs and Gretchens and so it was uh, a, a bit like 40k but contained in a box, uh, you know, like. And we used to play this a lot with my cousin and uh, you know I must have been like 12 at the time or something like that. So that's really um, what got me into the. Kind of wargaming stuff. Uh, I've always been a fan of fantasy, and uh, I had some. Uh, I played a little bit of D and D very early, probably around ten, and uh, yeah, that's it. And uh, after that, uh, I got into Warhammer uh, back in '92, and also uh, what else? Epic. Mm -hmm. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. Epic was a great game. But I mean, when I say got into, I bought the box set. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I had nobody else to play with. Oh, uh, bummer. You know, I lived in a rural area, so we'd yeah. go uh, to the big city uh, you know, every, whatever, six months. And there used to be that shop like uh, we'd sell uh, Games Workshop stuff. There was no official Games Workshop uh, in France at the time or maybe in Paris, but Right. I was uh, living, uh, you know, in a real area. So I would buy, buy, I would buy random stuff. Basically, I would, I had no idea what I would buy, and um, eventually, uh, yeah, either either managed to play it with my little brother or just uh, forget about it. But uh, you know, I wasn't very much into the miniatures, so I didn't mind too much not playing. But um, and uh, yeah, and it, it was a great time. White Dwarf also was quite popular at the time. So you could find it at your local news uh, agent. Uh, and uh, yeah, so that's my early stuff, I'd say. Um, I also always had a fascination with Blood Bowl as a kid for some reason, never had the game, but that came back later in my life. Uh, and uh, so. Yeah, so I mean, I pretty much uh, stopped any any kind of wargaming around 94, 95, maybe. And then I got into like the TCGs, like uh, Magic the Gathering and uh, video games, etc. I've always had computers at home because my dad was a big uh, was a electrical uh, engineer or electronic engineer. And uh, so I always had that part of, of uh, I mean, always exposed to, to computers in my life, which kind of made me what I am today in a way. Um, so, yeah, uh, yeah, there was uh, basically uh, I got more into uh, the parting, I guess, at the end of the 90s than the Wagami. <laughs> so, and then uh, in 99, I moved to Ireland and uh moved there for three years and then uh ended up in quebec in 2002 and then in the late 2000s i got back into the miniature stuff um uh, through blood ball again so i started collecting originally 
And then uh, I met uh, one guy, which is a good friend of mine now, which is called Dan uh, Chapu, which was supposed to come with uh, with me at Heartlet, but got uh, some COVID. Uh, I mean, his uh, girlfriend got COVID, so he couldn't make it, unfortunately. And I met him at a tournament he organized. Uh, he used to organize every year a Blood Bowl tournament called Death, Death Ball. And uh, so that. Uh, you know give me uh, the taste of mini painting and collecting and all that again and uh, I did that for a few years and then um, and then I lost it again <laughs> and back in 2018 finally I got back into DND for some reason I can't remember why I think I wanted to run some DNDs with the guys at work and uh, that got me back into the miniatures. And I started to build sceneries for the different D&D adventures we'd be making. And uh, eventually, I uh, started to get on Twitter. That's when I started tweeting about a lot about D&D stuff. I was also doing a lot of uh, drawing, map drawing, stuff like that. Uh, and uh, eventually, I saw some posts about some uh, Old West game that uh, uh, Jeff on Twitter posted at the time. And that just hooked me up. And I was like, oh my God, this is amazing. I need to get into this. And, and then everything uh, started from there. So I eventually got into, uh, so I bought a few uh, Old West figures and then I discovered Bolt Action. Mm -hmm. And uh, the historical side really was appealing to me more and more. Um, I have family who was in the two wars, so I, there's some things I can re relate to in, in a way. And uh, so got into bolt action, played a bit of bolt action with some guys around, and uh, eventually discovered uh, the Lardies and the rule sets. <laughs> and uh, I got hooked instantly. I think. Part of it was the rules, part of it was the characters and the people who play the Lardy games, because I think they're just, they're just in for a laugh, which I particularly enjoy. Uh, yeah. I'm not a very competitive player. I don't really care if I win or lose. So that really fit my, uh, yeah, my style of play. So I, I, I like how they're, yeah, like you point out the Lardies is that their, their ethos is very much of, we're here for fun and to have a laugh, but they're also taking this, the history very seriously yes, too, absolutely. which yeah. you often see very separated, you know, like guys that are heavily into the history. It's like, these rules are so serious and you know, Oh my God. And then you get the, the silly games, you know, which are just like almost there's, there, there's so much going for the laugh that they're almost disrespectful, which is kind of, you know, yeah, like, Richard Clark and the other Lardies seem to strike that nice balance. Absolutely. Know? And yeah, I like the, the historical accuracy and the um, recreating history in a way. I mean, not, not recreating it exactly, but yeah. uh, recreating the situation and seeing what happens, you know, because uh, sometimes luck is involved. Uh, and that's where things like um, viable movement in the Lardy games feels like very realistic to me because yes you know you step in a hole you 
twist your ankle you you know the, tons of things can happen on the battlefield so yep. I, I think the rules are really good for that so mm-hmm. yeah so i started with chain of command and uh, i that's when i met uh, my other good uh, gaming buddy which, which is john uh, john the Terneuve. he's not on twitter but he's very active on facebook Okay, uh, and he also has a blog like uh, that's been running for a long time now. Um, and John is based in Boston, but he's uh, he's from Newfoundland originally, uh-huh. and he does make the trip to Montreal quite often because he's got family here, and he loves the Montreal Canadiens. So <laughs> that's when I met him really. So he he would drive here. He actually used to play also Saga at the time, so he met he. He was playing with some other people, uh, and then I met him to the Lardy. I think there's like a there's lo- there's a locator for other Lardies on the uh, Lardy forum, and uh, I think I was you know asking on the forum, is there anybody in Montreal, blah blah, and I think John uh, raised his hand and said, yeah, I can I can play with you, and we've been playing so many campaigns with him. <laughs> So, and we still play every week together, whether it's wow. uh, in uh, person or through uh, Zoom or uh, Discord. So, That's yeah, 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 he's, uh, we've got some, uh, some good uh, stuff going on here. And uh, when the pandemic hit, that's uh, when we really started obviously playing remotely. We used to only play... Um, every three months or every two months uh and then the pandemic hit and we got uh you know proper setup with cameras in both of our uh wargaming rooms if you will and uh then that's when i started into uh getting into bag the hun which is a you would think is not that easy to play remotely but given the proper visual ads um visual ads yeah it's it's quite uh good to play so i printed these big white arrows to show the directions of the plane as well as you know uh, big numbers for the altitude and uh it played really well and we played uh at least a dozen games for the battle of britain and uh hmm. and then we moved on to the list of different games we've played some uh, kiss me hardy recently chart practice uh what else have we played? Uh, we also played some muskets on Tomahawk. It's not a lardy game, but it's yeah, it's a board game, James. Close your no. eyes. No, no, it's a it's a war Close. game as well. Uh, yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, it's uh, French Indian Wars. Um, now they came out with the Napoleonic, like more like uh, uh, it's called. Uh, the other one is called. Uh, bayonets and shackles i think yeah that sounds right yeah we just saw a review of it and uh yeah so that's another good one we played we also played some uh naval uh world war ii stuff with general quarters three which is another rule set uh i would uh, recommend is it looks daunting at first but it's actually super simple okay it's so it's uh d12 based but uh, it's great. I remember playing it outside at the beginning of the pandemic because uh, uh, my uh, other friend Dan came came here to play, and 
it was COVID, so we said, okay, we'll move the table outside. It was summer, so it was nice. But it's nice. a very simple game to set up, and uh, it's, there's quite a lot of rules for like night fighting and uh, torpedoes. And, uh... Yes, I'm just um, I'm just starting to get into World War II naval, so I'm intrigued, interested in rules. Yeah. So general quarters three says is fairly straightforward. Yeah, it's actually quite easy to to, to grasp. It's a bit like the the rule book is uh, is uh, only downloadable, I think. Yeah, Wargamer's Vault, I think. Yeah, and uh, but it's it's well worth it. They have lists for every single ship of the Second World uh, War, and uh, it's very easy to set up. Very easy to, uh, yeah. Yeah, only James had only James had someone to print ships for him. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. I know who's who could that be? I don't know. <laughs> Sorry, PY, when you said Tomahawks, I thought you were talking about um, this game. I don't know. If ah, you, interesting. Okay. I don't know if you know it. It's the GMT uh, game, Bayonets and Tomahawks. Oh, yeah, no. yeah, no, yeah no. It, it's very similar, obviously, in the name. So. Uh, it's got Tomahawks in it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, everything's this and that. Yeah, That's right. Yeah. 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 Yeah, Pete, yeah. So yeah, I mean that's pretty much on the list of games. I played some Judge Dread also from World of okay. recently, which I think it's quite fun. I like the, I like Judge Dread the the the, the comics. So okay, and uh, I like this type of game because they've come up with like a deck of cards that's really flavorful in terms of like the, you know. All the stuff you find in the comic uh, can be uh, introduced with like special cards and things like that. So I quite like the the, the game. It's a very simple game to grasp, and I printed tons of stuff for like uh, uh, sci-fi, uh, yeah, uh, basically cities and uh, yeah. The, there's lots of good stuff up there for. Yeah, you're you're not. Um... You know, from your Wild West town, you're not shy of printing large objects. No, um, I've printed my fair share of filament. I'm not sure exactly how many uh, kilometers, but uh, <laughs> I think it's probably close to ten by now. So, yeah, wow. <laughs> I mean, it goes pretty fast. Like, but uh, I don't know many rolls of filament I bought across my life, but uh, over my life. But my wife keeps complaining every time she sees. Uh, boxes of filament coming in yeah i feel i feel the same way about uh, bottles of resin pyi yeah i haven't i haven't bought uh, an fdm printer yet but uh yeah it's once you start once you start going it's yeah all consuming we'll we'll get to that in a minute i just wanted to um come back to um i mean your story is really interesting because it kind of matches some of the stories we've heard from people i mean james and i i think we kind of call ourselves the airfix generation right where maybe uh yeah. maybe a couple of decades earlier in terms of when we started but you know your your story is really similar james to some of the people we talked to like uh like evans mm -hmm. right you know yeah. about coming to uh you know a warhammer generation yeah, yeah warhammer. we would have air fix back then uh, when i was i mean yeah. as a kid and uh maybe they still had it in britain uh probably but uh i don't think it was ever very popular in france either so mm -hmm. yeah um but I remember playing with uh, plastic soldiers. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, one, probably one of the first war game I played, which was you know big rocks, a lot of plastic soldiers and marbles to try to knock them out. Yeah, we all. Oh did. yeah, yeah, so, yeah. yeah we all did that. And you discovered dice. Yeah, 
<laughs> yeah, my son and I once went to uh, uh, when he was about thirteen. We found uh, uh, one of these uh, bulk barn stores, bulk food stores. They were sell they sold these uh, gummy uh, green army men, right, oh, yeah. with the classic like army men poses. And so we we bought like two dozen of them. We had a rule where you know if you could kill somebody, you got to eat their soldiers. So that was <laughs> yeah. well, those are those are good games. <laughs> You know, lots of gruesome head biting and stuff. I wanted to ask about Lardy, the Lardy stuff. So, uh, are you? Um, you must be aware of the the Frozen Lard group on Facebook. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, you're part of that, right? I mean, there is a, a pretty dedicated Lard community in Canada, and uh, we're actually as part of this podcast. Uh, uh, probably before we go to you know Friday night or so, before we wrap it up and I start editing it, we're going to talk to. Um, Chris Robinson about the Lard Day coming up in Hamilton. Yeah. yeah. Is there any chance we're going to see you there? It's tricky because with the um, with my wargaming space renovation. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm uh, yeah, I'm quite busy, and uh, it's going to be uh, maybe a hot pill to swallow for my wife. So um, yeah, yeah. But I, I'll try to make it in uh, the the autumn one. Yeah, there will be a fall uh, one for sure. Yeah. 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 Um, I wish I could go, but I think it's going to be a bit too much. Um, um, as, as we used to say in the army, the 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 boss is uh, always right, and the boss is uh, domestic niner. You know the wife, so yeah, you happy yeah. wife, happy life, indeed. We wanted to just ask you a little bit uh, how you see yourself, because whether you see yourself more as a gamer, more as a painter more as a collector. And I'm just going to put you on the spot here just for a second. I'm going to share my screen sure. for the for the folks who are watching this on YouTube. So I found out you have this really cool blog. Ooh. And uh, I have to say I was super impressed by some of your paintings. So right now uh, I'm looking at some of your uh, your chindits <clears throat> that you did and you've got very, okay. very detailed paint schemes. I haven't updated that site for like <laughs> probably yeah. a year now. Well, it's it's amazing. Like there, there's some very very cool, um, like yeah, panorama style painting. Like uh, look at these, uh, look at these Japanese soldiers here. Oh my goodness! And the vehicle behind yeah. it. Yeah. So the vehicle is a resin print. Uh, yeah. I think it's originally a one one hundred scale vehicle. Scale yeah. is twenty eight mil. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's a bit um, rough on uh, once you scale it, but uh, it did the job at the time. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah, I've got a lot of Pacific stuff. I have more World War II Pacific figures and terrain than anything else for some reason. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm now, I now have uh, full Japanese army, uh, Jinbits and US mm -hmm. Marines. That's very cool. So I'm looking at maybe been... doing the Brits next. <laughs> You've just been doing a campaign with the Marines. Yes. Uh, I did the campaign before I completed the Marines army. <laughs> so, oh. <laughs> so the the figures were actually US Airborne during the, the play uh, when we played the campaign. But uh, at the end of the day, you have to finish the project, uh, you know. And, yeah. uh, so, Your enthusiasm for something is always, always yeah. when your stuff's half painted. Mm -hmm. By the yeah. time you get everything painted and you can finally do the game that you've had in your mind, you're done yeah that's it you're on yeah. to playing something else now absolutely the, one of the ironies of wargaming i think you mean, you mean we'll never actually finish anything is what you're saying that too i don't know if that just filled me with despair or not i'm 
Yeah. It's just a happy no. adventure. I'm trying to finish the pile of lead. I haven't bought anything yeah. this year. Well, I bought something at Hot Lead. That's the only thing I bought. But uh, it was from that chap who was doing a, a estate estate sale. Yeah. Uh, um, I just bought some like uh, ancient stuff because I'm doing infamy next. So right. right. Ah. Even though I don't, I don't really need it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> You know, but I think that's all I bought in terms of figures. So I'm pretty oh, it's very restrained. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't I was amazed. I didn't buy any figures at Hotlet. I, I was I bought terrain and books, but I didn't buy anything. Sexy trees. Yes, big sexy trees. Yeah, we've heard yeah. about these. Yeah. I, I just happened to buy some of Mike's figures, Mike Barrett's figures. Oh, so that's good. Uh, well, it's just Mike, right? And he's practically giving them away. God bless him. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. PY, I, I just wanted to ask you, like, one of the things we've, we've talked about in past is how how the hobby makes you or invites you to divide your time, right? Like, some people yeah. see themselves as collectors. Some people see themselves mostly as gamers, you know, where they just have to paint figures as a the price of playing a game. Mm -hmm. other, other people, like, their joy comes mostly from painting or we talk to a we talked to a fellow a couple of shows back who really loves doing scenery, mm -hmm. uh, Joe Saunders. Yeah. And although he's, you know, a pretty creative painter in his own right. So where do you see yourself? Do you see yourself as being like a little bit of everything or what gives you the most joy? Um, I think the, what gives me the most joy is probably seeing everything come together in a game, like the scenery that you make or print and paint and then all the figures painted. And I love um, photography. I love taking pictures of small stuff. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I used to be into bird uh, photography at a okay. point in my life. Oh, yes. So, yeah. uh I don't know. I like the. I just love to take pictures which look uh, great. Basically, like I, I love backdrops on the photos. I take a lot of photos of game table. I try to always have a backdrop. Yeah. I just want the thing to be immersive. And uh, mm -hmm. but uh, yeah, I think I get a lot of joy of uh, a bit of everything. Um, I get as much joy um, when I play a game or run a game i don't mind i actually sometimes prefer running the game because uh i don't know i, I like that for, i like that for some reason uh maybe more than playing the game you know mm -hmm. um maybe because i get to put all my stuff on the table and run it for other people which uh yeah, yeah. i yeah. think that's uh oh i can certainly sympathize with that yeah but uh, i don't have a preference Obviously, I like painting, but sometimes I hate painting. <laughs> when you're painting your uh, 100s uh, figure uh, for your army, you're kind of, oh my God. Yeah. So, you're experimenting with different techniques. My last army, I tried the different technique. Usually, I do batches, like small batches of uh, 10, maybe. Mm -hmm. But this time, I said, okay, I'm going to paint. I'm going to block everything at once. So, I started by blocking all the skin for... Uh, 80 something figures in one go and then yeah. i moved yeah. on to the the boots and then i moved on to the weapons so i bet that hindsight i think it was pretty good i think i'd do it again this way really I, yeah but then i what i did is the, after color blocking i went back to batches of 10 for like the um, basically uh, shading and highlighting 
Okay. And because uh, that's a, I think it's nice to see a final product before you've done uh, 80 figures or 100 figures. Yeah, you, so, you get a sense of accomplishment. Yeah, that's it. But the blocking part, anyway, is boring to me. So I'd rather get it done in one go, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I always get frustrated with these people on social media who say, you know, I painted like, like a whole regiment in like two days. And I'm like, no, how could you do that? I, I'm, I struggle to do like I'm working on a 30 figure unit right now, a seven years war unit. And I've been working on it all through March right. and I'm almost at the finish line, but I'm like, and, and I've uh, almost run out of patience to do it. Right. But it's, uh, it's not yeah. too bad. Yeah. I haven't painted anything uh, for the last two weeks, I think. So, or maybe like an ancient figure. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's about it. Well, you're renovating a games room. So well, yeah. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. Well, and, and it helps that you've got other interests, right? Like you can work on scenery one day, you can do 3D printing one day, you can yeah, yeah. Yeah, play a game with a friend online. Yeah, that's all. Yeah, I think these days I play more than I produce any or paint oh. anything, but uh, that's it's right. going to come back eventually. Yeah. So, and yeah. sometimes I get haunted by the sense like I spend so much time painting and hardly any time playing. Like, what's the point, right? Mm -hmm. like, am, I, am I just a collector at that point? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I see what yeah. you mean. Yeah, um, I can enjoy it all coming together. You know, yeah. even if the cat, even if it's just the cat on the table. Yeah. You know, you and Luigi enjoy how it looks. That's right. Yeah, he enjoys eating things. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and it, and it does take a certain amount of nerve to actually say, you know what, I've got a game, I, I'm going to take it to a convention. I'm going to let other people play it. I'm going to run it. I'm I'm going to be doing that for I think the first time in years in uh, at the end of May. And, uh, you know, everything on the table is going to be mine. It's all going to be painted by me. And, you know, that, that takes a certain amount of nerve, I think, right? Yeah. Well, it's yeah. the best way to finish stuff as well. Like, yeah, too. exactly. Yeah. Well, I always, my, the, the advice I was given by some, by an experienced game master was to never commit to a game if you don't have everything already done. Oh. Because as sure as death and taxes, life will get in the way and you won't finish those units that you need done yeah but and it's also good to be under pressure i think <laughs> yeah i guess i guess depends on your response to your, your response to pressure yeah 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 some of fair. us just seize up and other people it's you know it's a, it's yeah, a for me it's move ahead. i'll find a way i'll find a way and I, i'll be way much more productive uh, yeah, if I'm under pressure, for sure. Really? Well, well, let's talk a bit, a little bit about that. And I'm gonna, again, I'm gonna share my screen here, and uh, oh, just, just bear me, just bear there with I me. There I am, pinned down in the alley. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I wanted to show, uh, and again, this will only make sense if you're watching the YouTube video. So I'm just gonna put up some pictures of um, you, the game that you brought to Hot Lead uh, Py. Mm -hmm. So this was your, this was the the What a Cowboy game that you were doing. Right. So here you've got um, you've got uh, that's not you lying dead there, is it, James? Hmm? That's not you lying dead there, is it? No, okay. I'm the uh, orange base with the red cross beside it because right. I've been down yeah. and wounded. So this is part of your what a cowboy game, uh, Py, and and all of this stuff I understand you printed yourself. Yeah. So every except for the rock on the left, which is. Uh, <laughs> 
these are molds from uh, Woodland Cedics that right. are used to make the rocks. Yeah. Uh, every other building is 3D printed. The pig pen is actually a design of mine, except for right. the pigs. Yeah. And uh, the, the cinder uh, blocks are a nice touch. Yeah, except they're kind of out of. Uh, I don't think they exist. They exist. They started uh, oh. being uh, widely accessible to people around the 1950s. So yeah. sometimes, sometimes I get comments when I put it in World War II games. Yeah. Uh, but I'll put some tuft on top or like some lichen so that yeah. they don't show up. But uh, yeah, and then there's the um, the thing on the lower right. Chicken coop, oh, which yeah. is also another uh, 3D model I made. Uh, it's all yeah. nice. So, uh, have you got that, chickens for it yet? Uh, <laughs> I think I have the yeah, I have chickens somewhere. Like I have the world of animals set. Uh, yeah, complex, so they, they must be somewhere in my my pile of stuff, which is uh, has been that, behind that me. Pig pen, that pig pen makes me think of the the pig pen in um, Deadwood. You know, the one where, uh, where Ian McShane's character made the the bodies disappear. Mm -hmm. you know? Ugh, yeah. And then uh, what else did I want to show? I wanted to show, uh, I wanted to show, because our a lot of people I think are going to like this. The Yeah, so these are the um, the the character sheets, the player aids that you designed. Uh, yeah. So these are, this is, uh, for the folks who are just uh, listening to us, this is, um, these are the two player aids that you made and uh, all of this i understand is 3d printed and you've got a to keep track of the ammunition you've got uh, um, the cylinders of two revolvers mm -hmm. and then you've got uh, these orange um, cartridges yeah so they're basically orange because i didn't have time to paint them <laughs> <laughs> but at, at the end of the day it's bright and easy to uh, to see so yeah uh, that's uh so yeah i've got another shot quite well i've got another shot of it here if you can see that there's the the orange cartridge uh, yeah. open it up oh yeah so there's a version for the winchester and then a version for the shotgun yeah. i think yeah. i will have to produce one with a five bullet uh, barrel because i think oh, okay. a weapon in the rules uh that has uh, five bullets if i remember correctly yeah. but uh yeah for the um the show I didn't need that because I used the the base weapons uh, mm -hmm. in the game. Yeah, so, yeah. I know a lot of fun uh, thing to do. Uh, it took me. Uh, I burned a few rolls of uh, filament <laughs> to uh, to test the fit on uh, many of these. But, yeah, but that's all your design. Yeah, yeah. So that's I uh, I use um, I use several. Uh, pieces of software for this. There's a uh, Tinkercad if you want to mm -hmm. do simple stuff. But yeah. as soon as you've got patterns like circular patterns or uh, things that are a bit more complex, I tend to go through, uh, I tend to use Fusion 360, which is uh, from Autodesk. Oh, they yes. have free yeah. um, license basically uh, if you're just a hobbyist. Mm -hmm. So, and it's way more powerful. So. Have you got a background in uh, in design or CAD PY, or is this just something you're self-taught? Yeah, it's more mostly self-taught. I'm a software engineer by uh, by trade. So, um, but with uh, I, I mostly uh, do um, what we call user experience related stuff. So a lot of visual stuff. Okay, so graph right. graphics and art and everything. It, it's yeah. still, you're you're still very tuned into that. That's it. Yeah. I've always been drawing all my life, and 
using computers and uh, yeah. So I've always been, I've had this artistic side. Uh, so that helps me a little bit. Because I've noticed that in all, in all the things I've seen following you on Twitter and, and Facebook and, you know, and then playing your game in person is, is just how, um, how clean and, and like the good graphic sense you have. Yeah. 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 Lay, layout and design is one of the, trickiest thing to learn i think yeah uh, you know like you, when you when i first saw your picture um picture you put up of your your old what when you first started doing the old west stuff and it was just like a house and a rock and a cactus and then this you know bright blue sky with clouds yeah. behind it in the backdrop and i was like with the mexican wow. yeah yeah that looks like we're right there and then you know and then you use, probably use the same backdrop for your yeah, yeah. your marines landing on an island absolutely like yeah. we're right there and we're in the pacific it's so great exactly. So one thing I wanted to ask you about, going back to your cowboy game, PY, is the, the figures. So I've got one of I got one of the screenshots open for all of the scenery is printed. But what about the figures? Are these figures printed as well, PY? No, these are all metal uh, oh, okay. figures, okay. Uh, mostly uh, artisan design. Right. Uh, I have some foundry in there and okay. some other brand. Yeah, I yeah. remember. Uh, the foundry are a bit smaller, so I typically use them for civilians because this game can have uh, civilians or so. Right. Um, but uh, there's not much, unfortunately. Um, there's not many models for the Old West available to uh, buy and print. Right, right. The there's a lot of Old West figures out there. so Yes, absolutely. Uh, the, the range is huge. So, uh, now there's plastic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The gunfighters uh, from um, what's the name? Great again? Escape Games. Yeah, like those female gunfighters that are just being released. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's their second yeah. box. Kind of an odd box art. All these chicks and guns shooting at each other. I, I know. Like, what's that all about? Wow, the Women's Institute meeting got really ugly in that. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Don't like my pie, will you? That's right. You think yeah. your crust is better, bitch? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. yeah, I think figures are a bit trickier to, um, it's, resin is good, but it's quite brittle, so it would be, um, it, I'm not sure how well they would stand uh, the, the playtime, you know, like. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, you know, I, I was just, the reason I was asking whether the figures are printed is because I, I don't think we've seen yet uh, a game, at least not a hot lead anyway, I'm sure there are games out there where everything on the table was 3d printed but i i think we're going to get to that point fairly soon yeah i mean you're right yeah. there's been some nice figures coming out like that um oh the choppy that's doing some really nice um napoleonic figures like oh yeah yeah that's your warsaw and the baden yeah or the caballero uh figure yeah. like the his normans are gorgeous yeah 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 um We've, we've talked a little bit about this in, with previous guests, PY, about where they see 3D printing and in terms of the future of our hobby. Um, where do you see it? I mean, you're you're I, you're really adept at, at FDM printing. And I I know that, that one of the guys at the club that I belong to in Barrie does large, like 28 millimeter buildings. All his buildings are, are done by FDM and they look really, really good. Um, so it, it's obviously... It's obviously going to be huge going forward. Where do you see the future of 3D printing in the hobby? 
Um, <clears throat> so regarding FDM, we're like, uh, I think we're, uh, we're at a very mature state <laughs> in terms of the technology and the, 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 the actual access to models in terms of historical wargaming. I mean, mm -hmm. there's a lot of stuff available. Um, and uh, I think what's going what's gonna to happen is there's going to be more competition in terms of like uh, the, the, the type of models you can buy and the scenery. And we start, we're starting to see redundancy in some of the areas like um, of... Uh, uh, you know, like your Normandy buildings or whatever. There used to be only like uh, a few Kickstarters and uh, or uh, very uh, limited companies, uh, small companies doing uh, particular things. Like the first buildings I printed were the the old west ones, I think. And at the time, I think there was only a company called Printable Sceneries doing them. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, I think now there's been at least three Kickstarters, plus there's uh, companies like Corvus uh, Gaming doing them. There's, uh, I'm sure there's plenty of other companies doing them. So you have a lot more choice. And I also think the price tend to go down. I mean, the, the Kickstarters uh, used to be pretty pricey. I mean, uh, I think... Uh, it's um, they were they were pricey and they were less stuff. Now you uh, you could still get the same price for some of the the Kickstarters, like especially from um, there's a guy in Germany who does a 3D print, who's called 3D Print Terrain. Yes, uh, yeah, and then there's um, a guy in Britain, I think, who's doing Wow buildings. Mm -hmm. And um, now Kickstarters tend to include a lot more stuff uh, for the same yeah. price. So yeah. Um, so I think it's just going to be, uh, yeah, more competition, uh, lower model costs, faster print times. I mean, the, the printers are getting better and better. I'm, a, I'm now, I just bought my second FDM printer this year and, uh, it's so much quieter than my original, um, printer. I, I, I have a Prusa, uh, MK2. Uh, mm -hmm. which uh, I used to hear from the, like it was in my basement and I could hear it in my bedroom. I think. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but now the new one, we play in the same, uh, when we play uh, games in the, the garage, the printer is next to the table and we can actually chat and we barely hear it. So awesome. these are really good improvements. <laughs> And it's also so much, fa uh, a lot faster, print quality is so much better. Yeah, um, yeah. And, and I guess it depends too on the scale you're, you're working on. Yeah, yeah, obviously, uh, mostly, mostly buildings. Uh, I do have a resin printer as well, which I'll use for uh, smaller stuff, obviously. But mm -hmm. um, I don't use it as often as the, the FDM, I have to say. Um, yeah, yeah. And uh, resin is quite a pain to deal with. Uh, and it's also harmful. So you have to be super careful. But it's nice. I did print, uh, I did print figures like uh, for Judge Dredd, I print a, printed a bunch of fatties, which are uh, very large characters in Judge Dredd. So uh, because I didn't want to pay the 
the price <laughs> for the box of Warlords, which was I thought was not really <laughs> uh, well, it was quite expensive for three yeah. figures. So I was like, oh, whatever, whatever. I'll just buy the models from that guy who made great models and printed them, and uh, yeah, they did the job. And uh, so. I think for resin, it's gonna the future is gonna be mostly like the workflow, maybe a, an easier way to not have to spend as much time curing and uh, cleaning and uh, better material which are more resistant to shock. Because if you drop a resin figure on the floor, you can bet it's gonna be in multiple pieces uh, at the moment. I know there's flexible probably a more flexible uh, resin once they get cured, but I'm not, I'm not too sure. I, I don't, don't dabble with like uh, this type of specialty uh, resins, but uh, I think that's probably going to be the answer to uh, the biggest problem in my opinion, which is the, it's very weak. For, um, yeah. FDM yeah. is great. You can drop a building on the floor and it will- Oh, they're great. indestructible. Yeah. 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 I. I, I took the plunge to uh, resin printing about uh, just just at the new year. And I, I have to say, I, I still struggle with why I do it. I mean, in part, it's so I can make, you know, warships for my friend James. Mm -hmm. but, that's you know, why you got the printer. Well, that's exactly why I got it. But like this, 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 these guys, right? So, yeah. you know, these are Bacchus lead six millimeter, very traditional old school figures, right? Yeah. And so... I send off to Bacchus, I buy, you know, like three or four bags of whatever I need, like Bavarian cavalry, I have them. A month later, one night I can prime them, uh, scrape them, get them ready to paint and they're done. But if I want to print like 66 millimeter figures, that's actually a lot of work. You know, I've got yeah. to print them, I've got to clean them, I've got to cure them, I've got to hope that my printer behaves. I'm, I'm still not convinced that it's it's the future, but it's part of the future. Yeah. Um, I think certainly not for, yeah, maybe not for like six millimeter mass army stuff. Yeah. Yeah. But I have seen people like our friend, uh, James uh, J. Arnold, the veteran war gamer. Uh, he printed like uh, in pretty much a week, like two fricking 10 mil fantasy armies. Yeah. Just yeah. like and I was just I was just gobsmacked. Like, how do you do that, mate? Because that's a lot of work to 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 run that many figures through a resin printer. That's a lot of work. Well, you have to remember that you can bulk print quite a lot with a resin printer. Well, that's true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, well, he's, also, he's also an army first sergeant, so he probably yelled at the printers. Oh, I, I exactly, yeah. No, and they just did it. Yeah, they did. Yeah. You know, like they did not, <laughs> they did not screw up on them. No, no, they did not. Yeah, and uh, the the, the um, I've seen like recently. Um, there's a guy in France uh, who uh, whose company is called Eskis Miniatures. He's on oh, yes. I have some of his stuff. He's great. Yeah, he's on Wargaming 3D, and uh, he recently posted a video on YouTube where he explained how he prints like uh, uh, I don't know a hundred figures at once on his resin printer, and he basically just uh, he does multiple layers. Oh, okay. Figures with supports, so in between the layers. Oh, okay. And uh, yeah, I mean that's uh, <laughs> an efficient way of doing it. Um, yeah. But then it's all the cleanup. I mean, yeah, yeah. The the supports. I mean, yeah, supports are not too bad, but 
but usually yeah the issue is like uh, failures and things like that and yeah and, uh, i usually i consider it a good day's work if i can get 30 figures onto the bill plate run it overnight you know say a prayer before i go to bed come down in the morning and find yeah they've all printed you know yeah <laughs> yeah yeah Whereas often there's some sort of horrible, grotesque <laughs> abomination. Well, there's a, yeah, there's so many parameters involved, like the type of resin. Uh, yeah. the anyway, anyway, it's, it's its own hobby for sure. But yeah. I don't think it's not going away, I think. And it's interesting. Oh, no, no. Yeah. It's interesting how that's been a thread in our conversations ever since James and I started this podcast. So, well, it's the new thing. And, you know, and I'm, I'm sure there will be, there will be clever people who figure it out. And you know they buy the licensing or whatever, and they'll do you know print on demand. Yeah, oh, that's already just like you know you you download you download a rule book, you take it to Staples, and they print it and bind it for you for a fee. You know, I, I download some STLs and I take it to you know YP's print on demand, and yeah. say I want you know 100 figure, and you figure out how to stack them up in your printer or whatever, and say okay, come back next week. Mm-hmm. And I come back and there's a box of stuff and I'm like, cool. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 You, figure it, you know, the talk of the cost of your, your time and your resin and your isopropanol. And, and then you give it to your like painting service. Yeah. You don't have time to paint it. And then you give it to your gaming service because you don't have time to game with it. Yeah. That's and they just tell you how much fun they had playing with it. So that's think. the Elon Musk uh, school of, <laughs> of war gaming. Just outsource everything. Outsource everything. <laughs> Yeah, gaming in space. Yeah. So um, tell us a little bit about uh, go back going back to what a cowboy we kind of got we went down the 3d rabbit hole. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Why did you choose that game? And uh, tell us the story about uh, how you built that? Um, like how you chose that to chose that because I have to say it was the one game that everybody at hot lead was talking about. And it was the yes. one game that I the one game that I really wish I'd played in. And um, so well, tell us the story about how you chose that, how you kind of found out about the rules and, you know, whatever, whatever you want to tell us about it. Yeah. Yeah. So we have to go back to, uh, I think, the pandemic because um, so the, the author, uh, John Savage, um, I happened to meet him because I participated in the virtual arms right. event that ran uh, through COVID. Mm-hmm. So I think I must have done like uh, four or five. I can't remember how many virtual labs there were. But um, so I did originally just participated, and I think then I ran games in all the subsequent one. And uh, I also got involved with Jeremy, which was the organizer, to simplify his life because <laughs> he. It was getting so big at some point uh, that he had issues with like uh, assigning games to people. So I basically wrote a piece of software, which basically everybody was uh, given a link at 12 o'clock on the week before and the first to register that priority on everybody else. But it was basically a Google form. You pick your games and your slots and then the software would uh, assign you games based on your choices type of rule set you chose if you couldn't get your first choice etc i I said i said an alert on my phone (laughs) so i'd know when it opened and i went and found a little corner a corner above my you know in the factory where i got a little trickle of (laughs) wi-fi 
and I'm up there filling it out. <laughs> like, okay. okay, I gotta go did back. You get, did you get the game you wanted? I did. I did. I got uh, both games. It was great. You're, you're like you're, you're like that guy trying to get concert tickets. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Two, exactly. minute, two minute window where they go online. Yeah, before they're all sold. Well, I think the, we had rarely anybody uh, unhappy with with the choices. The, I think we had like a 95% uh, fill rate uh, on most events. Like, uh, So yeah. it, it went pretty well. So I ended up meeting John because, you know, after Virtual Arts, there's the pub, mm -hmm. uh, the virtual pub. And virtual. Uh, yeah, it doesn't where, sound like a lot of fun, really. Where, uh, yeah. yeah, I... No. Uh, I drank a lot and chatted a lot with all the lardies. And uh, I also played in John's games when uh, he was uh, doing a lot of infamy infamy at the time because it was right. the, 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 the new kid on the block. And uh, I think John must have mentioned it in during the pub uh, sessions. And uh, I... Uh, I'd already figures a bit of the buildings, blah, blah, blah. So eventually I, you know, I just uh, sent him a message on Twitter, I believe. And I said, hey, John, uh, if you're looking for playtesters, blah, blah, blah. You know, I have, uh, I have what I need to uh, playtest the game, blah, blah. And John said, yeah, sure, no problem. So I was invited to the, the, the group and uh, started receiving uh, rules update every <laughs> <laughs> every week sometimes i think i got an update the day before uh, heartland uh, yes yeah, on the friday night or the thursday night i can't remember um so john is still uh polishing the rules as we speak today but um i think it's fairly close and uh yeah so i got to play test it so what we did is um there is a campaign as part of the rule set, and John um, hmm. was more focused on the the one-time uh, games at the at that time, and uh, so John, the Terneuve, and I started playing a campaign, and then we started giving a lot of feedback about what uh, was working and what was not, and uh, yeah, that's that's how it uh, it, it went. I. To, to fulfill all the scenarios, I produce more terrain, more figures, and uh, that's how I basically ended up with uh, all the stuff I have today. And uh, yeah, so we're still, uh, I haven't played it since uh, Hot Lead because everything's mm -hmm. packed. It's still I haven't played hot anything since Hot Lead either. So. Yeah. And, um, but uh, then, yeah, a few weeks or months before Outlet, I was thinking about the tracking because we used to do it on loose sheets of paper and with dice in uh, different spots. And it's always kind of the, the stuff you forget, you know, flipping a dice to remove ammo. It's like sometimes you're carried away in the action and you don't think about it. Yes. So I said, ah, oh, yeah, it could be fun maybe to have barrels and things like that. And um that's where I um, came up with this idea. So mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I spent a few weeks uh, trying to design this and uh, that's it. But uh, yeah, the game is very promising. The game is, uh, is really fun. Uh, the campaign is really fun. And uh, yeah, and there is, a, there is an element of um, evolution of your posse as you uh, fight uh, different games against each other. Um, upgrades uh, skills weapons uh, it's really nice um, 
So yeah, I'm looking forward to the final version of the rules like everybody else, but uh, <laughs> I believe it's going to be this summer from the from what I've heard from, I mean, John has now created a Facebook group for the, the public uh, to uh, talk about. And I think he's mentioned uh, summer, but uh, could be wrong. Yeah, so it's yeah. not out yet. No. Because uh, I know a few people were asking on Twitter today, where do I get these? Where do I find this game? And I think, yeah. Said, well, we're, we're going to ask our guest tonight, but I my sense was that it's not quite out yet. So it's not quite out yet. You, you yeah. can reach, uh, reach out to John uh, Savage. He might let you run the game. I know he allowed our good friend, um, uh, Keith Burnett to run it at Lardy's. Right. Uh, so, you That's know, pretty exciting. Well, yeah, Keith, think, Keith's a great game master. So. Yeah, and uh, it's good for a game to have exposure. So I think that's also the, the yeah. um, reasoning behind just decision to let it uh, be played at conventions or small events. Like, uh, yeah. Well, and there's, there's um, for Lardy people, there's another game which I played at a virtual LARD called Packing Heat. Yes. Which is right, a right. Um, small man-to-man shootout version of Sharp Practice, which is... Yeah, yeah, I'm very excited about that. I'd rather go that way, you yeah. know. Yeah, Johan uh, did run it quite a lot during the virtual art. Uh, yeah. I never tried it myself, so yeah. But, uh, I've I've got gangsters, so I I, I really yeah. want to get in that one. John John uh, John he, he, John uh, hasn't finished what a cowboy, but I know he's gonna come up with something else next. Well, what a cartel. Uh, can you guys can you guys see this? I just yeah, I saw it yes. today or yesterday. Yes. Well, this is uh, John John's Twitter feed. So yeah, yeah he's yeah. he's got the Copplestone uh, gangsters yeah. down here, and he's thinking about uh, he's thinking about a what a cowboy adaptation for uh, would work uh, perfectly. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So there you go. That um, you know James does some great uh, gangster games, but uh, yeah, yeah, I've really heard good. and uh... well, I try. Yeah, they look good. The games are crap, but they look good. Well, the games are you know, just basically... That's the thing about those games, right? It's like you've got like six players, six factions. You know, you're going to get you're gonna get shot by somebody when you least expect it. And, you know, it's just shoot yeah, them yeah. before you shoot you, basically. Yeah, and it's, it's just trying, to, it's just trying to, to manage the chaos and give people reasons to move around the board and interact with each other. And yeah, exactly. You know, there's politics involved, I guess. Um, well, not really, because there's no point in talking to anybody. They'll just shoot you, right? <laughs> <laughs> it's like, no, let's talk. Let's go, oh! Anyway. Uh, yeah, I've, I've thought about you know trying to you know put some put some monopoly money into the game and people can bribe and stuff. But. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's really really cool, and that I mean it was such a successful game at uh, at Hotlight. I hope uh, I hope I get a chance to play uh, play it the next time you're around. Absolutely. I wanted to just ask you a little bit about uh, the gaming scene in uh, in Quebec. Now, is there, for example, is there something in in Montreal or Quebec City equivalent to uh, uh, Hotlight, or is there um, or, or, or is it just basically you, you and your online friends in your basement? I, I can't say for sure, but uh, in Montreal, most of the the action I see is mostly in stores, like or um, so there, there's quite there's big stores with big room, room spaces, okay. uh, like the Abyss, and uh, there's another mm -hmm. uh, yeah. place that opened in uh, Laval, I think, recently. Uh, unfortunately, I don't go very much to these places because I've got everything at home and uh, I'm usually running the games. 
uh, from yeah. here. Uh, but uh, I know there's uh, the Quebec scene is quite active in uh, historical stuff. I see a lot of uh, uh, meets. They meet quite frequently in like um, uh, the you know these pubs where you can also play games. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. 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 So that that seems to be the trend. As far as the events, um, like uh, things like Hotlib, I don't think there's anything really. I mean, there's, I think there's Comic Con in Montreal, but it's, I mean, it's a very, uh, it's not very miniature uh, oriented. I mean, there will be some, but, uh, but other than that, unfortunately, we don't have any kind of historical. Uh, miniature type events here which mm -hmm. uh is something i was thinking about you know to maybe to run some some type of event but uh obviously it's not simple but uh <laughs> i will be contacting you the day <laughs> i really want to get into it mm -hmm. um but uh, yeah unfortunately being playing from home and everything i don't have much exposure to the the wargaming scene uh, that could be outside of my uh, place. I do look up quite frequently online if I can find new groups or new um, Facebook groups, maybe things like that. The thing is you look for Montreal wargaming and you don't find much really. Uh, and uh, I certainly don't know any other Lardy in Montreal. <laughs> mm. So I know there's a couple of Quebec players um, who've uh, been dabbling with the Lardy games. Um, but in Montreal, it's like very uh, quiet. Mm -hmm. There's uh, guys in, Verm in Vermont, uh, in Burlington. Okay. Uh, which uh, have a, they have a group there. With, and I think they play mostly uh, in Bean Shot Mom. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, yeah, and probably some people in Ottawa as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Montreal is kind of dead, but uh, I'm saying this, and I might be wrong. So, if ever a Montreal lardy is listening to this, please get in contact with me. Yeah, and, uh, I will be happy to play with you. <laughs> well, and so, and we would yeah. say the same if if you are listening to this in Quebec and uh, uh, you want to get in touch with us and tell us more, please do. We would love yeah, to hear from you. Absolutely. I'm hope I'm wrong. I hope I'm wrong, and there's plenty of stuff yeah. going on, but. Yeah. As far as I can see, I don't, yeah, I don't, I can't find anything really uh, uh, on my end. So, well, that's that's the Canadian scene, right? It's it's really it's just like small networks of people, yeah, who happen to you know got in touch with each other. Whereas every time I listen to a British wargaming podcast, they would say, "Oh yeah, I went down to the pub and so and so went to the club in Upper Wilmington," yeah. and you know, it's like, oh, lucky you, you buggers. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, kind of a paradox because. We have a lot of room in Canada. They yeah. don't have estate. Real estate is very. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. would think it's much harder to get uh, for a club in the UK. Still, they make it. I guess it's because this building have been uh, occupied yeah. for so long by the by these. Uh, yeah, groups. and they have these funny community halls and. Yeah. Whatnot. Yeah. yeah, that's something that's a bit uh, uh, um, frustrating here. Is um, you you don't have any public. Uh, spaces that are available for people to rent or whatever like for smaller smaller fees if you will not like, really uh, no. like in france every town has its uh as a hall that can be 
yeah. uh, rented by anybody from the town and to do to organize things you know that's uh, you would think that it could uh, really bring a lot more life to your uh, to your uh, town or city and i mean bring people together but uh, you would think people yeah. keep trying to do that except they keep getting monetized yeah you know they keep getting bought out bulldozed over and made into some profit thing yeah. mm -hmm. so boo <laughs> oh well well you know, we, we, did, we did talk to uh, the folks in Vancouver, the trumpeter group that rent space from, um, I think it's a community service organization, Lions or Kiwanis or something. And then the guys in Hamilton, um, Barnaby Orr's group rent from uh, like a veterans group. But yeah, yeah, yeah. they tend to be few and far between. Yeah. 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 And, uh, yeah. I don't know what kind of agreement they have with them, but uh, yeah, it's not cheap like the, um, the, the spaces. So no. Yeah. You have to you have to find a good group that's ready to, I mean, you know it. Uh, it uh, you 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 need membership money like to run this kind of kind of places. Uh, you need people to be willing to yeah. pay. Like, I don't know, like uh, twenty, forty, whatever mm -hmm. amount, depending on the the amount of members. But mm -hmm. um, or you need a rich friend who can yeah. buy. That's it. Who buys the the whole place? And that's it. what we ought to do, James. We ought to like we ought to pressure Walter. You know, some deep-pocketed friend of ours into like <laughs> buying a space. Oh, okay, yeah. Uh, yeah. Sure. I'm, I, I'm, yeah. <laughs> when I win the lottery, okay. When you win the lottery, I'll, I'll make the the war gaming center. Mm -hmm. It'll be great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, I've pretty much run out of things I wanted to ask you. Well, uh, uh, what's what's, uh, what, what's what about James? YP. Yeah, tell us what's next. What's your next project? That was, that's that's right. That was on the list. Okay, so um, currently, what do, you, what do you want to do next? I am currently trying to paint uh, Germanics for uh, Infamy Infamy. Uh, Ooh, I've assembled these two years ago, I think. Yeah, the um, uh, the, the the Victrix Germans. Yes, I oh, really like the Victrix ones. Oh, they're... those are great figures, aren't they? Yeah, yeah, they're amazing. Yeah. So yeah. I have some Romans that are also assembled and ready to paint. Mm -hmm. And then I've got the, still in the bags, I've got the goals. And uh, I also have a few wallow figures for some of the stuff that Victrix doesn't make. So, uh, but I, the scale is kind of off, so it's kind of difficult to, mm -hmm. to use them. And uh, after that, um, I mean, um, I always wanted to get into ducks, ducks, Britain, Aram. Oh, so as opposed, to the, as opposed to the birds. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That could be an option, but I, I have tons of figures to paint. I have a, a British Airborne Force to paint. I have all Shomiagers to paint. Yeah. But I, at some point, I have to go back to Europe and do the early war or uh, something. Um, like um, the Eskis miniature guy has a whole French army. Oh, and they, they are really nice figures. They are. Yeah. Really I painted a batch of them just to test, and uh, they're cool. And uh, my granddad used to be uh, fought in 1940, so mm. I have some ideas for scenarios. Like, uh, mm. Well, yeah. and I, I, just, I just 
love the French tanks. Yeah. From the 19th. Like they are just, they're just so gorgeous. Like just the lines and the, 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 the camouflage schemes. It's just very, I don't know, art deco. <laughs> they're just, they're just beautiful looking. Okay. The one, the one man turrets are very inefficient, but who cares? They look good. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> they don't need, they don't need to be efficient. So yeah, that's it. I also have more uh, old west buildings that I've printed recently and I've not painted like some. Because you need a bigger town. Yes, actually, I want to go back to the desert. I'm, I think I'm gonna do. Um, I'm gonna do like uh, Mexican villages and things okay. like that. Yeah. Like, uh, I really love like there's a, a film on Twitter. Uh, who's been public, pushing a lot of pictures of these uh, Mexican town buildings that right, yeah, and I find them amazing and they're so simple to do. Like, uh, yeah. so I really like the 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 look of this stuff. Yeah, yeah. And Nick Skinner's been doing um, a really interesting project, uh, sort of set in the uh, Alamo period, right? Yeah. you know which is really that's a great that's a great period because you've got uh, the old west mm-hmm. but you've also got napoleonic uniforms for the mexicans so you've got a little bit of everything yeah yeah, yeah. it's perfect yeah. yeah yeah that's great i'll have to get into uh, shop practice also at some point so. mm-hmm. well you have to right oh, because yeah. every gamer eventually ends up with napoleonics right but yeah. my uh, friend uh, john the has, has everything so i mean he, 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 it's he, good to have a friend like that. he used to have 3,000 Napoleonic figures, he tells oh. me, but uh, painted. Oh, just, just a couple. <laughs> just a couple. That's all you need, really, 3,000. He, he, he only kept uh, a few to run skirmish games. And, oh! Uh, you got tired of doing the big battles? Yeah, I think so. so. Yeah. And in a few uh, years, you just go, damn it, I want to play a big battle again. I'm sick of these skirmishes. Well, do six yeah. mils. Yeah, you'll have to do it all. <laughs> I don't think I'll ever get into big battles. I'll do 28 mil skirmishes. That's great. 28 mil is my scale. Like, uh, well, let me tell you, I started with just this like nice limited, you know, 28 mil sharp practice project. It was just going to be very finite. You know, it would be great, right? And then my friend says, "Well, this is terrific." Here's some Prussians. And it's like, oh, well, now I've got a division of Prussians. Okay, fine. You know, so I've got to build an, an in-house opponent for them. So I end up doing a division of Bavarians. And then he says, you know, I, I, here's, here's a Russian army that I don't want to paint. And it's like, okay, so this isn't a skirmish pro- project anymore. Like it just, that's the thing with Napoleonics, right? You think you can control it. Yeah. Uh-huh. And then the little guy in the hat just shows up and goes, hey, here I am. Right? <laughs> and you're throwing your Shaco in the air and shouting Vive Lampur and, and Nacho. That's right, yeah. And, That's right, yeah. yeah. The next, next, it's like four in the afternoon, you're charging a British square going, what the hell am I doing? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> well, you know, I don't know how well you guys can see this, but this is my... my uh, my plea here to get to consider the small scale. So I've got three brigades just on the table here. Also, depending upon the scale of the battle, you could call that three core. Oh, and, yeah. well, anyway, and it didn't take that long to do. Anyway, oh, and I've also got the the giant cat of doom on the table now. So oh, of course, so Luigi's got to get into the uh, Luigi, the the cat beast of Mordor. Yeah. Um, 
you know, it's funny. I, I going back to the Germanics, uh, JY. Have you had? A, have you actually had a chance to try um, Infamy? Infamy yet? Yeah, I've tried it uh, during Virtual Worlds. I think I played two games, and yeah. I think I played the Germanics in one of them. So, yeah, I really love the asymmetric uh, aspect of this uh, rule set. He captures yeah. it very well, doesn't he? Yeah, yeah. You know, the, and, uh... um, which brings me to an idea I've always wanted to do, which is a, a, a rule, um, set of rules for commando uh, actions. Okay. And it will be a nice segue to your book section because. Uh, <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but I think, like, so let's talk about the book because. Um, when I uh, yeah kinda, when I got into historical gaming, I started reading more books about the subject, and uh, I read this book from um, okay, let me get the name right. Uh, it's called Churchill Secret Warriors: The Explosive True Story of the Special Forces Desperados of World War. II. So it's a story of the small unit of guys that uh, basically do commando action on. Uh, different objectives like uh, an airfield in Crete or uh, a boat in the middle of uh, um, the coast of Africa. And so I think it's the kind of rule set that could be interesting, but it's also very hard to put in place because it's all about uh, stealth. Yeah. Uh, it's not really achieved, very hardly achievable in, uh, in wargaming rules. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, so I've always had that on the back of my mind. I take note when I have ideas, but it's it's very uh, it's a subject I would love very much to dabble into. But uh, yeah, Black Ops has um, has some interesting ideas about stealth and sort of as you're doing as you're doing things, you kind of accumulate noise. Oh, yeah, yeah. Noise marker. Don't tell me too much because I don't want to be influenced by other oh, okay. <laughs> I give you ideas. But uh, yeah, because if I read another, uh, if I read a, a, a rule set, I might just, uh, you know, say, oh, yeah, that's obvious. Yeah, that's the way you should do it. But uh, sometimes it's better not to know what exists. So you can come up with a mechanism that's original. And uh, yeah, but yeah, like anyway. lines or, or, or different, you know, deployment. Yeah, like. Um, and I thought maybe this game should only be a card game, you know, like that you play uh, along someone to, you know, and the enemy force is kind of automated in some way. But I always wanted to keep it paper. Uh, I don't want to involve like uh, computers or apps or I, I, I think, uh, uh, yeah. Anyway, that's... Oh, sorry, that, that book, uh, Churchill's Secret Warriors, was that the one by Damien Lewis? Yeah, that's the one, yeah. yeah. Okay, so that was... Uh, yeah, we got into the part of the podcast where we ask our guests to um, recommend a, a couple of books for our digital library. And uh, that is totally stolen from the God's Own Scale podcast. So, uh, yeah. yeah. Thanks, Sean. We're, we totally stole that idea from you, buddy. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's a, a great recommendation. Did you have another one for us? Yeah, uh, the other one is, sorry uh behind japanese lines uh, by uh what's his name richard dunlop so behind japanese line with the oss in burma so it's really uh sensing a theme here yeah <laughs> so i got obsessed with Bur burma for some reason <laughs> <laughs> and, and uh yeah 
I built like enough jungle to fill up a six by four table. That's maybe enough. And uh, I have my Chindit Force, which uh, is uh, complete. My Japanese, I, I can. That's really a subject I really liked. I mean, these guys I did rough, uh, the Chindits. It's crazy what they went through. And uh, the stories you hear are amazing. Like, mm -hmm. uh, it's, really, uh, it's really something else. And um, so, yeah, that's, that's a brilliant book. Um, and uh, yeah, highly recommend it. Oh, that's great. Yeah. yeah. Have you read um, Quartered Safe Out Here? George mm -hmm. McDonald Fraser's memoirs of being with the 14th Army. No, I don't. I don't think so. I should oh, you should you, you should try and find it and and read it. It's one of the, it's one of the best. Um, well, of course, Fraser's a, a great novelist, and he brings that to his own memoirs, and and so it's, it's one of the best war memoirs out there, um, and people who have read a lot of war memoirs have said that too. So it's not just me, although my opinion is very important. Um, so yeah, really safe, wrong, I, I, I would recommend Corded Safe out here just to add to your Burma reading. Sounds good. Yeah, yeah, look into it for sure. Hmm. Yeah, we had a guest um, uh, two episodes back, a Canadian guy called Sean Taylor from Victoria, who uh, has written a, a set of rules for miniatures about. Uh, the secret war uh oss i forget oh, yeah. the exact title of it but um mm. they're interesting and when i uh, i wish i could think of it i'm just trying to look for it on my computer uh he very kindly gave me a copy and i'm i looked at it and i thought oh this is super cool and i can't find it but i will uh i'll, I'll send you the details on it uh, jy afterwards because it might give you you know might give you some ideas um I don't think it's a well-known set of rules, but Sean's an interesting guy, and uh, yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, it's uh, it's very, uh, yeah, it's a very cinematic, like um, like the, this type of actions I think would work really well on the table, like uh, destroying planes on an airfield, and oh yeah, 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 or, or just raiding a lighthouse or raiding landing secret agents behind the lines, yeah. moonlight or whatever. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's so cool. Yeah. Wow. Well, this has been uh, this has been a great conversation. I'm. Uh, um, a pleasure for me to. Uh, yeah, yeah, I'm starting to think about the time it's getting on, but I'm also very much aware of what James said about how you don't end the conversation right away because something cool always comes up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we've 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 lost a few good things that he stops recording and then we keep chatting, and then you know people say some really interesting things it's like damn it that should have been in the interview yeah yeah, yeah. i get it uh but uh, you know um i'm hoping to uh yeah to have my garage completed uh in time so i can resume my uh wargaming operations what will your garage look like when it's finished will it be like a full gaming room i hope so uh i'm putting the effort into making it like uh, a wargamer's dream <laughs> if right, you right. uh so, so lounge not a garage 
Yeah, so I'm, I'm getting rid of the industrial heating on the ceiling for some uh, concrete uh, heated uh, floor. I'm gonna have them polished as well, so they're nice and shiny. And then, oh, nice. Uh, a lot of uh, storage all over uh, around the room. Yeah. Proper spaces for 3D printing stuff. And uh, yeah, that's it. A properly finished place because. I've been, uh, yeah, it's been a, it's been a dirty and uh, cold place for too long. So, <laughs> well, I have a great idea, JY. You, you need to get that finished, and then you could open like the, uh, the Quebec Holiday War Games Holiday Center. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And then you can have um, your friends. Sure, from... my wife would be delighted. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. I'm always impressed by those those British. Um, uh holiday centers that you yeah have. yeah they look really interesting yeah sure. i don't i just don't think that would ever succeed in canada i don't think unless you wanted to blow all your retirement yeah. in one year yeah well i so I, I i toyed around with it you know thought like oh you run it like a bed and breakfast yeah and then there's but there's also wargaming and then there's like and i was thinking hey then you could write off your figures as a business expense there you go right nice. am i right yeah, yeah I, I think so here you know not, not an but, accountant but i think it's got legs yeah yeah but that but then i real but then then elizabeth and i realized the whole problem with running a bed and breakfast is basically you are killing your weekends and your oh, yeah. mm -hmm. right right and, and you're trying to be you have to be nice to people that you might not really like yeah who probably don't like the way you boil eggs or something so yeah, yeah. because you know um what what were we saying earlier uh People annoy me and I hate them. Yeah. Well, no, people are stupid and, and they make me angry. Yeah. Yeah. People are stupid and they make me angry. That, yeah. yeah. Which is very appropriate. It's the, it's the motto of the podcast, basically. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's not. Okay. <laughs> yeah. No, you know, actually, somebody who could pull this off, um, our friend Kurt Campbell from uh, Regina who we interviewed very early on in the life of the podcast and is the host of the Analog Hobbies Painting Contest. He actually built an amazing, like a 30 by 40 building in the back of his house. Um, and it's uh, it's like like a dedicated war games lair and it's amazing. Mm. And uh, you know, he's, um, yeah, I think Kurt, if you're looking for a retirement project when you finish the archive work and you know, for the government of Saskatchewan, yeah, you could open up like the Prairies War Games Holiday Center, and yeah, 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 because yeah. you know Regina's a nice place to visit. Sure, yeah. when, it's not, when it's not winter, <laughs> you just need to convince your other half then to come. Well, out. yeah, his other half. Yeah, yeah, she's lovely. She's lovely, the lovely lady Sarah. Well, It'd give yeah. people a reason to stop in Regina, though. Well, yeah, there's, yeah, yeah, I suppose. Regina's nice. When I lived in the prairies, it was like the place you either went, if you want to go to the big city, you either went to Calgary or you went to Regina. So, such a big country. Yeah, it is a big country. Yeah, there, yeah, we got a lot of rocks and hills and trees. And, yeah. Water. How many hours did it take you to drive to uh, Stratford? On the way in about eight, I think. Eight. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I was a bit quicker on the way back, but uh, caught a tailwind. Sorry, you caught a tailwind. Yeah, and I stopped less uh, with the um, charging the the car. Oh, I, ma I managed to do it with two stops on the way back, and uh, I yeah, it was nice. I actually talked to um, uh, Jeff 
and Joff Bond on the way back. They were on uh, Discord uh, on the Lardy's Discord server. So oh, okay. we had a nice long chat and uh, yeah, it was fun. And uh, traffic was uh, inexistent in Toronto because we were on Sundays, uh, a Sunday. So, I mean, inexistent. It was Always nice to have an easy drive through Toronto. Because, uh, mm -hmm. you know, Toronto is an hour from Toronto. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. So, really, that's great. Yeah. People, people down at this end of the world, they, they're terrified of, drive, of having to drive to Toronto. And they, they plan their trips sort of okay we've got to leave by this time so that we get through toronto before yeah. you know rush hour mm -hmm. you know rush hour lasts about three hours you know or we're going to leave at this time so that we're there after rush hour you know which means it's like well now we're driving through at nine o'clock at night you know, and <laughs> ow <laughs> yeah yeah but yeah it's just like everybody, everybody west of of you know, Hamilton is terrified of Toronto. I can I can understand why. Yeah, yeah. So, I was I was looking at the days for next year's uh, hotlet, and I was looking at booking my art my uh, hotel, but I, I think they changed the policy. Right, you can no longer book and cancel if you can't make it. Hmm. So uh, if you book, you have to pay straight away. Right now. Are, are you booking directly with the hotel or are you booking? Uh, I was uh, I was trying on the online sites. Uh, okay, call the hotel directly and book. Okay. Because I also use the the Best Western. Yeah, that's that's yeah, okay. So no you can do it through the hotel. Okay, so I'll do it because for me it's like a bit of a gamble sometimes. Right? Yeah, book directly I... with the front desk. Mm -hmm. Okay, okay. That makes sense. I will say uh Although I'm sure we could find you somebody who would take your hotel room. So there's our top tip for our listeners in Radio Land. Yeah, absolutely. When yeah. coming to Hot Lead, which everybody should try and come to. Mm -hmm. Even right. our listeners in Ireland and Spain and Norway, we'd be happy to see you. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Come, come from away, y'all. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> All right. Well, before we slide into any other terrible regional accents, that's probably a good way to finish it. So oh, we'll just tell them to pile their coats and boots in the in the uh, hall yeah. and down the right. kitchen. Well, Py, thanks so much for joining us. This has been uh, this has been great, and uh, you've been a lovely guest. Yeah. 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 We look forward to uh, maybe having you back uh, down yeah, the road yeah. and hearing what you're working on. Definitely uh, come by next year. If, you can be uh, the Canadian uh, Wargamer podcast correspondent in Quebec. Right. Yeah, we're yeah. searching for uh, lobbies and more. Like right. You know, that's something we actually didn't talk about tonight. We didn't talk about poutine ah. and why you shouldn't eat it. The food, I hope we you meant the food, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, no. Poutine is an acquired taste. I mean, it is. When I moved here, I was, I could not understand why people would eat it. But now yeah. I am, uh, I have been converted. Oh, oh, you have been converted. Oh, oh yeah. okay. I love it. Okay. Yeah, it's okay. yeah, it's something you have to eat a few times before you appreciate it. I think. Huh. <laughs> like, like an English cook breakfast, like. Oh, okay. Yeah, That's like not a recommendation. <laughs> but you, I mean, you are living in the home of poutine. Right? Well, technically, the home of poutine is uh, in between Quebec and Montreal. It's uh, the area of Jonesville. 
Germanville and Victoriaville, these are the two towns fighting for the right to say they invented the Putin. Oh. Well, you're, uh, you're, you're, you're within a comfortable drive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Home of Putin, where, you know, like down here in Southern Ontario, where it's like Oktoberfest sausages, you know, schnitzel pie. Yeah. It, it's just sort of, uh, you know, what's this, you know, it's just gravy and fries and, yeah. So yeah. I don't know, you can get a good Putin down here. So. <laughs> There's lots of different ways of making poutine, but uh, yeah, you'll find your be- your 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 own poutine one day. I'm no, sure. never. Oh, okay. okay. <laughs> um, I think I like mine with with the malt vinegar and no gravy and cheese on my <laughs> on my French fries. Thank you. Heretic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I took my uh, I took my son to a place here in Barrie called Smokes Poutine. It's a bit of a chain in okay. Ontario, and it's a very kind of like a specialty store where you can there's different kinds of it. And uh, I think we both tried the butter chicken poutine, really. But it's just it's just a glob of butter bu- butter chicken, and then once you eat the butter chicken, you've just basically got nasty fries and gravy underneath it. And why yeah, not, more of a classic. Why not? Why not just eat butter chicken? Really, like yeah, yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. No, I, I don't put anything in my poutine except for chicken. Mm-hmm. That's the no. like uh, chicken from like a rotisserie is chicken. Like, no. yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, I'm not big into mixing things. <laughs> not meant to be in a poutine. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. No. No. On that note, it's funny. I've kind of lost my appetite for a midnight snack now. I think. Huh? <laughs> well, you diet. I'm just gonna go to bed. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All I'm right. That late yet? No. Okay. Well, it's late for me. I'm an old man. All right, chops. That's been great. I think we'll wrap it up here. Well, that is, of course, the Maple Leaf Forever, the old national anthem of the Old Dominion, and it marks the start of the Canadian Content Corner. That's the part of the podcast where James and I just have a bit of a natter about Canadian military history, about Canadian gaming, or just general Johnny Canuck stuff that makes us darn proud to have maple syrup coursing through our veins. And so as the Maple Leaf Forever, played by Her Majesty's Irish Guards, dies away, Here is the Canadian Content Corner. So this is the Canadian Content Corner, eh? And tonight on... Totally, eh? Yeah, totally. And tonight on the Canadian Content Corner, we have, like, a real Canadian. And uh, he's, like, in front of the podcast, eh? And so he's Chris Robinson. And Chris... Hey, hey, Chris, welcome. Good day, Chris. It's nice. Good to be back. Yeah. You're you're like a you're like a regular co-star on this, so uh, but don't expect to share the royalties. Okay, just a, a frequent guest star. Frequent guest star. There you go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. recurring character. Mm-hmm. Yeah, recurring character, um, non-player character. Player. I don't know. Anyway, so we asked you on tonight because uh, it is today is May first when we are recording the second half of the podcast that we recorded. Uh, we started recording almost a week ago because that's how it works and. You are one of the masterminds, along with our dear friend Barnaby, of Alarde, 
which is coming up at the end of May, and you have an exciting story of a brush with Wargaming celebrity fame because you talked to Big Rich himself, Lardy Actual for their for their oddcast. So, uh, without further ado, first of all, uh, Chris, um, what was it like talking to the big guy? Oh, it was, it was pretty. It was pretty straightforward. I mean, there were there were no um, marquee or anything like that. Uh, I was just uh, uh, Rich and I. Just after lunch, his time, and just after breakfast, my time. Uh, one day, just before I had to get busy for work, and we just chatted. Um, we were main chatting, chatting about our, our Lardes days here in Canada, and just a um, bit of an update there for him. And we're, as we talked about last time I was on for a bit, we, we as far as we know, we're the only one in Canada that uh, happened. So we were talking about that, and nice. I, I'd been, uh, I mean, I'd been pestering him or talking to him I guess since 2020 when we had that initial plan in the spring of 2020 to have a LRD's sort of corner at Broadsword in Hamilton that that went up in uh, COVID smote um, and and so I've sort of been every so often you get the random email from me telling me what our, our an update of our plans was and uh, <clears throat> um, and and so uh, you know we've gotten a lot more traction now. We've had our first event. I was actually supposed to do some recording at the event, like others have done at their Lardy uh, days, and gotten that over to them. But um, between just not having the mental capacity on the day of it uh, to to remember to do it, plus uh, plus you know a lot of people are having you know reunions essentially at that uh, that convention. I didn't really want to pull people away from. Uh, what they were doing to, to going off in a, a corner with me to, to record something. So I didn't get that done, but I've been talking to him again um, this winter, just updating what we're, we're, we have another one coming and hopefully another one in the fall. And so he invited me on to, to talk about that. And it, 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 it went broadened into a, uh, sort of a conversation about wargaming in Canada. Who do you represent? Um, and I, 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 uh, I, I treaded water as best as I could. I, I suspect I may get some hate mail from Western Canada and Eastern Canada because I, I apologize in advance because I probably sound like, you know, the Laurentian Delight just talking about Toronto and Ottawa and Southern Ontario. But I, I don't know about what happened really in those other places. So I didn't uh, I didn't speculate, but I talked about just what our gaming scene is like. And uh, I, I think we're, you know, generally sort of a uh, follow the sort of the American model for for uh, war gaming with a bit of, you know, the British, you know, there are some groups that do have their, their, their halls that they meet at like, like the Hamilton crowd. So mm -hmm. that was, uh, that was about it. And uh, I made the obligatory invitation to Rich to try to get him or Nick or Sid uh, over some time for, for something, whether it's uh, one of these days or hot lead or something, it'd be, be, uh, be good to have them over. Promise them that most of our money has, you know, be looked familiar if they turn it to the flip side for them and all that. So, um, see if it see if it happens someday. Did you get them sorted out on Lard A? Uh, yeah, I did hear that podcast uh, where they went through a lot of iterations of it. I didn't get into it uh, with Rich. He was, yeah, uh, he, he wasn't. Uh, he, he was. Uh, I don't know if he even said the name, but no. I, uh, I, I kept up with our pronunciation. So. I think I cringed a little bit um, on their last podcast when uh, Sydney Roundwood pronounced it Lard E-H, I think. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I, I hope, because he said it reasonably correctly later, so I think he was perhaps spelling it out for everyone else who has no idea oh, we'll give him of back. that particular in-joke. Um, yeah, yeah. Because so. if, you, if you say it quickly, 
you just think it's a funny pronunciation of l-a-r-d-y yeah yeah so yeah and it's not like there aren't any other weird lard convention names so yeah. no no none at all they're all very staid and respectable yeah how many uh how many games have you got locked in so far chris um i'm oh i'm uh off to probably count out loud here because we've had some changes but i think we have uh chain of demand infamy infamy uh grand Darmet, or general Darme. will be me uh eight, my sharp practice game acw i'll do that twice so let's i'll turn it just one for now um roger's doing 1812 again with a sharp practice uh we have what a tanker uh in malaya uh, a 15 millimeter game of um, uh, Chain of Command Gothic Science Fiction style. Chain of Command Gothic Science Fiction style. That sounds yeah. awesome. Yeah, I think it's a homebrew conversion of uh, some horse hair safe 40k sort of uh, action with um, some other figures. I don't know where they're from, but uh, other yeah. figures. Wow. Yeah. That's cool. Like you're up to now. at least 10 there. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and it's pre a pretty broad suite of games too. So uh, yeah, as as usual. So um, nice selection. Be something for everyone. That's exciting. I think uh, Howard's doing his what a tanker game, and he's just trying to cycle through that uh, the whole game. So anyone, yeah. it's, it'll sort of be probably uh, almost like the the drop in game there for those mm -hmm. who don't yeah. uh, mm -hmm. don't get there for anything else. He'll probably every yeah. start something new every hour and a half or so as the the first round of tanks go, and I think they're. Yeah. Uh, Malaya, so there'll be Japanese tanks. So I think some of them will probably be going with fairly, fairly regular frequency. Uh, I don't know what they'll be up against. Maybe Stewart. So yeah, I hope it's Stewart's because yeah. putting them up against Matildas or Grants would just be evil. Yeah. No, I think you should play it where the Japanese player has just a bunch of guys with um, bicycles, and uh, they hear the the British all hear the squeaky bicycles and think that they're tanks, and they all run away. I think mm. that would be, yeah. I'm sure that I've heard stories about that. It just so happens I had uh, coffee on Saturday with Howard up in Aurelia because mm. um, Mike Manning uh, introduced us and uh, said, uh, well, Howard, he just lives up the road from you. You should go get to know him. That was my Mike Manning impression. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> That's pretty bad. Well, no, I, actually, there's a pretty good impression of Mike Manning. You just sound like James Mason. <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> um, I've known Mike since the early '90s, so I can hope I get away with it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but yeah, he's a lovely guy, and we were doing mm -hmm. that usual kind of thing where war gamers meet each other the first time. It's kind of like dogs sniffing each other. We kind of walk mm -hmm. around, and, you know, like yeah, what yeah. scale, what rules, what do you do, what do you like? And then Howard uh, mentioned that he was uh, doing a what a tanker cam, and I was like, well, that's very cool. That's exciting. Is that and, who you're playing yeah. DBA DBA with the other night? No, but it turns out that that was a guy called Charles who belongs to the Berry Group. But it turns out that uh, Howard knows Charles really well because Howard has been running DBA tournaments at Hot Lead for years. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And uh, every time I went to Hot Lead, I saw the DB guy, DBA guys in the corner. It was kind of like a chess tournament, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Two guys hunched over this little tiny thing playing with a few pieces. And you, it's not a spectator sport. No. So, you know, I was like none the wiser, but, uh, you know, I'm uh, anyway, I will save that for a later part of the podcast because I'm I kind of I'm kind of curious about it all now. You know? Rich was very kind enough to mail me 60 of the red uh, lard dice, which we are going to be selling mm. at uh, um, we're going to be selling at uh, Lard A in Hamilton on the 28th. 
I think uh, the price we agreed on is two bucks a uh, product, two bucks per die, yep. and all of the proceeds will are going to go towards the uh, McMaster Children's Hospital Foundation. I think I got that right. Yep, that's right. Yeah, yeah. and nice. that was inspired by uh, what the American uh, Lardy crew did for uh, one of uh, our own, uh, the one of their own, Andrew France, mm -hmm. whose son Owen um, is recovering nicely from um, uh, initial treatment for uh, leukemia. Mm. So he's a brave little guy. He's, um, um, I think, he's six years old, and um, he's gotten a bunch of cards and things from various people. And you know, I kind of got to thinking afterwards, well, you know, we should maybe do something similar, if not for necessarily for Owen, because I talked to uh, Andrew, He's, um, and he said they're actually plugged into the local university hospital, which has a special funding for treating, you know, children. And American healthcare, as you guys all know, is pretty precarious, right? It's how, mm -hmm. how, how much can you afford? Yeah, even if you got insurance, it's scary. Yeah, and Howard, uh, or sorry, Andrew said, uh, no, we're good. But uh, if you guys want to do something in the spirit of that, then you could. So uh, Chris and nice. Barnaby and I talked, and mm -hmm. seems like a good thing to do. Yep, yep. Yeah. And we'll be having a, a raffle as well that will support yeah. the support the same cause, and it's uh, and it's one that'll be, uh, or it's one that is pretty close to the the local Hamilton uh, players' hearts too, and, and that's yeah. one that they uh, through the regular. Um, uh, club activities that's when they often donate to as well when they have a chance to yeah, to do yeah, some so. fundraising yeah and there'll be a, a couple of raffle items donated by this podcast so mm -hmm. yeah well that's all very exciting yeah i think the, well the usual um sort of generally for everyone who's, who's been or who hasn't been it'll be a pretty uh casual day there we'll have a a morning session a time slot that uh, about 9 30 to 1 30 about an hour and a half for lunch we'll get going again at three run those seven and then uh, whoever wants to stay will probably order in some curry or other uh, uh, dinner of your choice but uh, uh, most of us will go for sort of the, the, lar the lardy's option and get some curry in and wrap up the evening with that and it's at the uh, the royal hamilton light infantry veterans association hall in hamilton ontario well in the east end yep, yep. and uh, and probably the best way to find us would be on Facebook would be uh, through the Frozen Lard uh, group. And then from there, we'd invite you to the, the private event page uh, that sort of keeps everyone who's coming up to date. Very cool. I'll make sure there's a link to that in the uh, pod notes when we put it up on Podbean. So, yeah. Excellent. Thanks, Mike. Thank you, Chris. That's awesome. We look forward to seeing you at the, uh, at the end of May. And uh, I will get you the uh, particulars of my game as soon as I finish figuring them out. So. Okay, that's that's good. That's what I'm going to be heading back to is basing what I need to get ready for my game. So uh, yeah, one of these days the panic has started. One of these days I'm going to be confident enough to uh, bring Bag the Hun for oh, you. Oh, that, that would be cool, James. Yeah. Why don't you Why don't you do it at the end of May? Um. Well, I've got the grandchildren here the week before. Oh, right, right. So I'm not sure if the the day is we're just going to be too tired okay or we're going to be scrambling around catching up on stuff that didn't get done while grandchildren are visiting <laughs> you know like groceries and laundry and all that fun that's okay. why i'm not that's why i'm being very non-committal about mm -hmm. me, my attendance as so. a uh, as a fellow member of the uh, league of wargaming granddads i think i absolve you <laughs> thank you father good excuse so yeah let's see my son here off the hook Next year, though. Next year, because you have cool toys. Oh, in the fall. I'm, oh, no. Have you nailed down the date for the fall one yet? 
Not yet. Uh, other yeah, than one three, of those late Saturdays, yeah, in October. Three potentials yeah. in October, yeah. Okay. I've got them all marked on my, okay. on my phone. So. Excellent, yeah. Cool. I, I have my vote. I just need to see see whether or not Barnaby agrees with me, and then we'll, we'll yeah. land on it. You know, if the venue's available. Yeah, yeah. So we look, we look cool. forward to more. We look forward to hearing more, buddy. All right. All right, thanks, thanks guys. Thanks for joining us. Right. Take care. Right. Bye-bye. Hey, Chris. You in Hamilton. It's a pretty good Canadian content corner. That is very good Canadian content corner. Oh, actually, I have some more Canadian content. Oh, yeah. So I wanted to do a little bit of show and tell while we're here. Okay. Because um, we're now on the YouTubes. Now on the YouTube. So I'm going to hold up a book. It's called uh, Building the Army's Backbone, Canadian Non-Commissioned Officers in the Second World War. And I'm going to hold this up because my lovely wife, Joy. I'm getting, I'm, I'm getting yelled at by it already. Oh, she looked at uh, she looked at this guy and said, "Who is Mister Handsome Pants?" <laughs> so this is a book by a Canadian uh, academic, Lieutenant Colonel Andrew Brown. He's an assistant professor of history at the Royal Military College of Canada, and oh. I bought this at a uh, UBC um, press sale. And it's it's not like a you know it's not something that war gamers necessarily would. Um, would get a lot out of directly like there's no accounts of actions but what it does is it tells you what it was like to build an army from scratch for the yeah and we were building an army from scratch like we were and you know you and i know how difficult it is to get loaded on courses and how you know courses sometimes come up when you can least do them and how what a pain it is and so forth and you know because you and i both worked in training right Mm mm-hmm you do work in training. That's what that's what the that's right. Was. That's my command. Yeah, that's your command. And imagine what it's like in wartime. Uh, so, for example, this book has tons of information about how the uh, Canadian Army expanded. So, for example, in 1942, I think it was the and uh, National Defense authorized the creation of a second Canadian Army Corps, um, and that meant that uh, they had to get. Uh, NCOs stripped out of units that were preparing for for Italy and training in Britain, and mm. they had to send them back to Canada as trainers. Right. And, uh, you can imagine how unpopular that was with you know battalion commanders who were like you know what you want my best NCO and you want to send it back to Canada for what six months eight months, just as we're getting ready to take part in you know the invasion of it of um, Italy. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's a lot of shenanigans about people sending back, you know, they're less than stripping their units of, of duds rather than, um, you know. That's and, a fine tradition. I mean, look at the old Airborne Regiment, right? Yeah, yeah. And there's a uh, and there's a lot of fascinating stuff about what training was like. And it, this is interesting for me because my father uh, went through this whole system. He started the war as, um, as a buck private with no military experience. He had no time in the NPAM the non-permanent active militia. He just joined as a ranked civilian. Uh, he was promoted to corporal pretty quickly in the Royal Montreal Rifles just because he knew how to do a little bit of drill. Um, made sergeant several times during the war um, and uh, you know was busted for various shenanigans and that was not uncommon because the Canadian Army spent a lot of time in Britain and they all got bored and you know people just... Well, and they, they were civilians in uniform. Yeah. So yeah. The, the idea of you know the professional ethos wasn't really you know it's like well we're here to go fight nazis um other than that it's all bullshit yeah exactly they weren't professional soldiers they weren't that interested in um being lectured uh, by guys uh, by people like general simmons they just thought he was a wanker and 
you know, yeah. they just had their job. I thought I'd just maybe read a little paragraph from this because this is kind of cool. This is just a, a, his introduction to a section on demographics, which is really interesting. He he's surveyed um, several hundred NCOs, um, you know, that he could get their their service records for. Uh, so Company Sergeant Major Alexander Connolly, typical Canadian NCO of the Second World War, resident of Toronto, Ontario, spoke English, attended the Anglican Church. He came to the Army with partial secondary education, having left school after grade 10. He was an apprentice steamfitter. He had little experience in the MPAM, having served as a local, local infantry unit from 1933 to 34. Enlisted in the active Army July 1940 at 24 years of age, which was actually typical for a lot of NCOs. They were in their mid-20s when the war started. Uh, so he joined the Lincoln and Welland Regiment, uh, known as the Lynx, or sometimes the Lynx and Winks. Uh, spent two years as a private, was promoted to Corporal July 1942. Uh, a week later, he reported to the Junior Leader School at Megantic, Quebec, to learn how to be an NCO. Uh, attended several training programs that gave him specialist instructional skills, including courses in driving, platoon weapons, urban combat. March 1943, he has 33 months in the Army. By then, he earns his sergeant stripes. He skipped over the appointment of Lance Sergeant, which is a rank that doesn't exist anymore. Gets to France in July 1944, started fighting. Mid-August, he suffers a gunshot wound to the chest. So he's, he goes back to Britain, spends two months in hospital, returns to the continent where he actually rejoins his unit, which was not always the case because once you got into the reinforcement stream, you might be sent to another unit. Yeah, whoever needed you. Yeah, whoever needed you. And uh, so he, he came back as a, a re reinforcement who had battle experience and knew, um, knew people who were still serving in the links. Uh, he got promoted to warrant officer class two, company sergeant major within a month. And uh, first March 1945, he's 29 years old, died of wounds received in action. So, huh. yeah. So, he did, so close to the end. So close to the end, yeah. And he's kind of like a typical Canadian Army NCO. You know, he, he learns his trade. Uh, a lot of it is on courses. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, he's typical in that 42% of the NCO Corps had um, uh, some high school. And that was about it. Yeah. So yeah. being a little bit older and having some high school is probably what got them, yeah. got them uh, tagged as being potential NCOs. Yeah. A exactly. bit of maturity and education. And then I thought, just for fun, um, I'll finish this part. I just thought you might be interested, our readers might be interested in knowing what it was, what the training looked like. So this is the three-week syllabus for the Junior Leader School at Megantic, uh, Quebec in September 1941. This is where our guy Connolly was. So these are the subjects. Uh, 14 periods on the attack, 19 periods on defense and protection. Bear, bear in mind, this is a three-week course. Two on discipline, 12 <laughs> on drill. So bear in mind, this is preparing NCOs who are going to be training other people, right? So you're training the trainers. Three on examinations. I'm not really sure what that would mean. I guess, can you verify that somebody has a skill? Four, four periods on exercises, 15 on field craft, six on field defenses, one on gas, which tells you they weren't that worried about gas by then. One on loading platoon truck, 14 on map reading, 12 on patrols, Three on quick decision making. Hmm. Four on reconnaissance, appreciation, and order. So I guess that would be, um, you know, um, small party taskings, we'd call it today. Five on rifle yep. fire control. Two on supply and medical arrangements. And one on village fighting. So that's 120 periods over three weeks. So hmm. probably pretty busy. It probably wasn't, uh, probably weren't a lot of days when they were just like, you know, 
falling asleep during PowerPoints. Oh, no, thank God. Yeah, yeah. so I don't know what you make of all that, except... Um, well, you know, I mean, take out the stuff about weapons handling and attack and defense. It sounds like cadets. Yeah, yeah. You know, 14 periods on, on field craft and, and you know, another 14 periods on map and compass and yeah. you know, decision-making and, and small party taskings. That's, that's all what we teach teaching cadets too yeah yeah and the the point he makes in the book is that um by the time the canadian army started forming in england and in um a lot of the senior ncos were pretty were sent home just because they couldn't keep up with it the 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 the, the schedule of uh, route marches and um you know physical training uh was really really intense probably even intense by today's standards mm. uh, so um a lot of these older guys um were combed out you know, Montgomery, when he was overseeing, I think the first Canadian division as part of his command, was pretty ruthless. You know, he'd tour the lines and he'd complain about all these old uh, sergeants and warrant officers. And a lot of these guys were just sent home to Canada where they found very useful billets as trainers. And as a result, um, a lot of the sergeants and warrant officers that went into action in Italy and, and France were, um, you know, fairly new on the job. They weren't um, Interesting. Just ask Colonel Brown whether he thought, you know, man for man, our NCOs were as good as the Germans, or you know, because mm -hmm. um, I mean, they had less battle experience. A German NCO probably in Normandy probably had, or Italy probably had, a, a year or two on the Western Front, uh, Eastern Front. Right? Yeah, you know, um, but it was their NCO training any better than ours? That would be an interesting question. Um, cool. Yeah, I mean, and they certainly grasp the delegating to lower levels of command and, and, you know, encouraging lower level initiative to, to keep, to keep the unit on mission, um, which yeah, Americans and British Canadian were, were getting, but mm -hmm. I'm not sure if we were doing it quite as well as the Germans were. Um, well, I mean, I think every army probably adjusts its training once it goes from, um, you know, the, the barracks and the classroom to the actual battlefield, right? I'm sure that's going on in, I'm sure that's going on in um, Ukraine right now. Oh yeah. Uh, and I'm sure that the NATO instructors uh, are probably adjusting their training in light of, uh, you know, what they're hearing from the guys they were training and who are now fighting. Mm -hmm. So, well, oh, goodness knows now, you know, nowadays, like, you know, you can just stay connected with your phones and, and your former student is, uh, you know, sending you Twitter messages from the front line going, oh, hey, you know, that thing you taught us doesn't really work you should like put this spin on it in, the, in your next course yeah yeah, um. <laughs> yeah exactly yeah no i've heard that from friends of mine who who were who were training ukrainians for sure that they're regularly getting messages on, on facebook and stuff so yeah well my friends that's the canadian content corner and uh, we're going to move on to the closing part of the podcast where james and i just natter about stuff um yeah what do you want to natter about tonight james well um First of all, I want to give a shout out to War Bases. Okay. Okay, because um, our faithful listeners will remember that I, I enthused about my sexy, sexy Bavarian supply wagons, uh -huh. which were in a game on my blog um, at the beginning of the year. Right. But um, they had given me very good service. Uh, I'm going to go over here. I had ordered that. Okay, a nice ammunition case on. Oh, it looks MDF. Nice. In, in MDF. That's MDF, yeah. MDF and a bit, and bit of card for the top and the seat. Um, the horse is metal, obviously. Okay. Um, 
I was going to say MDF horses have really come a long way. Like, yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'd ordered this and another case on. Mm -hmm. um, and then when I was putting the other case, that's a little bit bigger. Um, right. I noticed that this, this card um, here, hold it up. This card strapping, you know, the yeah. reinforced strapping yeah. that was missing. And the roof, the roof was the wrong or was missing as well. Mm -hmm. And then I started looking at the other kit, which is supposed to be this. And it was like, oh, the strapping's not even in there. Huh. And so I, I emailed them back. So some parts are missing. And they said, oh, no problem. And so yeah, I got, you know, new ammunition case on and a new other tool case on, um, which, you know, cool, very good. Except the the thing that that the kit that I thought was missing parts, it was it was really messed up. It was this. It was a, it was a supply wag um, ammunition cart with right. some bits of this, some bits of this. And so, you know, now I got like extra wagons. Um, cause I just took the, you know, I used this bit as a template to cut out very carefully cut out for the other case on it was missing parts. And so now I've got like four for the price of two wow. and they're very good. They're very good value. It's like three pounds 30 for the case on. And then you order the draft horses separately and you can order drivers separately. And it still comes up to like half the price of a metal um, ammunition case on or wagon. Uh -huh. So uh, yeah, they're, they're good deal. They're nicely detailed. I like them. They go together very easily. And then uh, it's been a rainy Sunday here. So I've been assembling Prussian artillery for my um, ongoing, because this is, this is going to be a Prussian ammunition case on. Okay. Um, yeah, so I've got the limber assembled three guns started behind me right there. You can see I'm, I've started painting another, another battalion of, ah, uh, another battalion of, of Prussian. Infantry. Oh, there they are. Yeah. Yeah. So folks, we're getting a, an in-depth tour of James. Ductwork. Well, you know, and, and I cleaned the table up for last night's game. You did, yeah. Yeah, because, you know, my, my table had gotten quite disastrous, which you'll see, if you can see any of it in the background of me during the interview with um, Pierre Eve. Yes. Um, this has been cleaned off since, because I had to play a game, which yeah. is very cool. Uh, Scott was available. He didn't have any overtime. And he brought his, he bought some 15 mil Cold War kit uh -huh. uh, on eBay. And uh, last year, he has never played with it before. So he said, hey, let's play. I want to play with this. Okay, cool. So we, we worked our way through seven days of the River Rhine, little Canadian force defending against a bigger uh, Soviet force. Uh, fun game. Mm. I quite liked it. It moves very quick. Uh, you're not getting worried about crunchy details about, you know, well, I've got a laser rangefinder, but oh, you're countering with, you know, hot smoke. And like, I, I'm pretty sure like, you know, an anti-tank guided missile system is an anti-tank guided missile system, whether it's a, you know, Sager or tow or. Right. You right. Know, um, there's some, you know, some different gun factors and, and armor factors for the tanks, but it all moves very quick. And, and the heart and soul is little command chits. When you activate a tank, you put a command chit on it. Okay. And you can keep, and you know, and if he does something, you can put another command sheet on it to react with that tank, hmm. except every command sheet causes a negative die roll modifier for your activation. Okay. So you can keep the pressure on and keep activating guys, but eventually you'll, you'll fail an activation and the initiative goes to him. Right. Right. And you just keep going back and forth till you're, till you're both out of command sheets. 
Okay. And Seven Days to the Rhine, is that the name of the rules? Yeah, Seven Days to the River Rhine. Um, it's from Great Escape Games. Okay. Um, so, oh, yes. yeah. I've seen some of that on Twitter, I think. Yeah. Yeah, it, 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 it's fun. Um, Scott was saying that, like, pointing out that reconnaissance vehicles actually, you know, have a purpose, mm-hmm. which is kind of neat. Um, and they have, I was looking at it on their store, and there are hidden unit tokens. So, obviously, there is, there are some rules for concealment mm-hmm. in there, which we were, you know, we were kind of thinking was sort of missing because, of course, we're deploying you know, out in the open for everybody. And he knew where I was, and I knew where he was, and... You know, and to me, that's part of the whole, you know, modern combat is concealment because once you're seen, you're dead. Right, right. Right. So it was nice getting the table cleared off, kind of kind of cleared a bunch of cobwebs out of my head and got me going on some stuff. And I, I saw on Twitter that you were using some of those lovely Fowler um, German railroad uh, model, model railroad buildings. I have had those since like all the little the little cottages. Don Perrin gave those to me. Mm. way back when i think like 85 he i think he was still he was still a cadet at rmc and he, un- <laughs> he unloaded all his Napole- all his ho napoleonic stuff and these houses are with them um and then i bought the 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 uh, bigger buildings that you'll see in pictures on my blog um yeah we used to have a leisure world in town and they had them on clearance and i was like oh let me get those because those are really nice they're hard to find now yeah and they're very expensive so it's great to get them on clearance. So yeah, I've had I've had them for God over thirty years now. Hmm. Um, every time I, and they, every time I do fifteen mil seven years of war or well now Cold War, mm-hmm. um, they get out. Were, were all the figures uh, all the toys Scotts or was it some from your own collection? Yeah, it was my terrain, his his vehicles and troops. Right. Yeah, so it was, it was all battlefront stuff. Right, right from you their know, team Yankee. plastic plastic leopard tanks and plastic. Uh, t64s so you look fine yeah 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 they're nice kits um yeah they're cute uh he had carl carl friedrich paint up his canadians mm-hmm. and fix the uh warsaw pact and west german stuff he bought used and it kind of got damaged in shipping um so carl fixed a bunch of it for him that's fascinating i i i swing back and forth on world war three um you know i mean i'm glad i'd never had to fight it Mm-hmm. Of course, you know, the, I guess the verdict is still out on whether we could still have World War III, it just not in the 1980s, but the 2020s, which isn't very... Yeah, yeah you know. Um, but it's, you know, a lot of a lot of people on Twitter that you and I follow, like um, uh, Tom Egan, the, the Irish Army officer, has been talking a lot about, um, you know, World War III, and he has a lot of the Team Yankee kit, which looks really good. And then he was flogging a book that, James, I think... Um, you would probably find fascinating. So I'm going to hold another book up to the camera. Ooh. This is okay. called Battle Group Lessons of the Unfought Battles of the Cold War by... I'll have to, I'll have to borrow that off you. You will. Yeah, I'll be happy to lend it to It's published by a British guy called Jim Storr, mm-hmm. who was uh, British Army of the Rhine for, you know, 30 plus years. And from a wargaming point of view, it's absolutely fascinating because he he bases his um, his analysis in part on... His own experience with the British Army, and uh, <laughs> in the first chapter, he talks about how he and his brother, who was also a British Army officer, uh, the author Jim Storr was regular, and his brother was a territorial. But they played hundreds of games. They fought. They fought and took notes on 202 tabletop battles. 
uh, no, more than that, uh, but they have notes on 202. Uh, they used the old uh, WRG War Games rules for Armored Warfare at Company and Battalion Battle Ooh. Group level, 1950 to 1985. Ooh, those are very crunchy. Published in 1979, and uh, um, he uh, he has a lot of to say about you know what war gamers get right and what war gamers get wrong about. Uh, well, that'll be interesting to know. Stuff. He's very keen on the Bundeswehr. He says the Bundeswehr was by far probably the best army of the Cold War. Um, specifically built on lessons from the Wehrmachts fighting the Russians. Um, mm -hmm. Less keen on the uh, the British, very skeptical about the Americans. He says the Warsaw Pact probably was super overrated in terms of its, um, Turn, terms of its numbers. Yeah, uh, turn, turns out that may be right. You know, I, I, I've got a friend in Ottawa, he's a war gamer, and he was in intelligence, and he was saying how he owned... During the Cold War, they're all like, ah, you know, the Soviet soldiers, this 10 foot tall giant with laser eyes. And, you know, once the Iron Curtain came down, it's like, oh, it's three raccoons in a trench coat. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know, they're just faking us out. Yeah. And then, as we know, they've gotten just worse, I think, you know. Well, yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm pretty sure they're, 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 I think their competencies in the, you know, 80s and 90s was a lot better than now. Probably. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not sure that book made me want to um, go out and buy a bunch of uh, 15 mil kit or World War III kit. Well, you know, I'm thinking because I've got this idea in the back of my head um, of of you know the Kingdom of Mantovia. Yes, that's right. And their 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 long-standing rival on their eastern border, Borduria, which of course after World War II becomes a Soviet client state. Right, right. And Mantovia gets rearmed with you know British equipment and American money. You know, and they have border clashes. So I, I think maybe Mantovia won't be fully part of NATO because otherwise a border clash would turn into World War Three. Right, right. Or right. maybe you know, I'll just say it's World War Three, whatever. It's but it's being fought in 1952 because I want to have Centurion tanks. Uh -huh. So you know, I just want an excuse to have Centurion tanks rampaging around the table well, and infantry with FNs. Yeah. And you know, doing it in like doing it in in six millimeter. Cause you used to play a lot of. We used to play a lot of. Uh, Cold War micro armor when uh -huh. I had a club here in town that met in a, a hobby store, and that was awful. Very, very crunchy, technical, tedious rules. There's no sense of command and control, morale, that kind of thing. And, and usually, whoever fired first won. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, the Warsaw Pact guy had to roll across the table, and then, you know, NATO unleashes hell with like you know, thirty salvos of tow missiles, and you're taking off companies at a time, right? Yeah. And you know, infantry just kind of disappear at that scale. Yeah, yeah. You know, like they, I, you know, GHQ has resources. Oh, well, these are, you know, these are American infantry, these are British infantry. It's like, how can you tell the difference? Yeah. At yeah. six millimeter, like just they all look the same. Like I mean, actually, my group we just used used um, counters from board games. That's what we did too. Yeah. For the infantry. Yeah. So I know it's just very visually unappealing to mm -hmm. me. Um, and ten millimeter, I, you know, everybody's like going on about the uh plastic soldier company 10 millimeter stuff for um battle group north egg uh -huh. and looking at the prices i don't see a lot of cost saving with 10 mil hmm. and then and then have to get all new terrain well and i mean so 10 i might as well i might as well do stay with 15 millimeter than all my world war ii terrain you know i can Sure, I can add some 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 um, high voltage pylons and you know some, yeah. a few modern buildings or whatever. But all my World War II train can can just soldier on. Yeah. For yet another war. 
Or your well, your faller HO stuff would work in a pinch with fifteen mil. Oh, right? for southern Germany, yeah, and and you know, yeah. Mantovia is very much um, in the south. It's Bavaria, Tyrol. It might slide over and have a little bit of the have a little bit of the Adriatic too. You know, the Mantovian tourist and Ministry of Tourism is very is we're really pushing the wine and cheese festivals <laughs> to boost tourism. That's right. They probably have a great Eurovision song uh, contest entry as well. Oh, yeah. totally. We got four hot blondes. Yeah. And yeah. yeah. The guy with the ukulele. And yeah, I'm sure it would be. Well, we're not so sure about him. <laughs> you know, he's, he's, kind of he's kind of embarrassing. Yeah. yeah. And, they're, and they're all wearing like bell bottoms. And yeah. yeah, we're trying to find a kid with a guitar and, and, and someone who can play it. You know, but one of the blondes has potential with, with electric keyboard yeah so you know we might be okay there yeah it's funny i was painting some figures uh, a couple of nights ago and uh, i had uh, i listened to apple music on my phone sometimes and i just uh, let it i just picked something and i just let the algorithm go and suddenly i realized i was listening to songs from a 1960s hungarian pop album and i had no idea what they were singing but i thought they were kind of groovy like i i wow yeah, I should have I should have snagged that album and put it on my uh, playlist because it was kind of fun. Anyway, yeah, I have one of those photos of a you know a sexy girl in polyester pants getting on a moped and yeah, and like, then some guy with a big cheesy cheesy mustache and frizzy hair. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah I mean the other thing you could do it too is I suppose is you could find a friend with a three D printer because uh, the Henry Turner's uh, um, has a, a range of. Uh, uh, 3D printed Cold War figures from oh. 1950s, the mid early Cold War. But you know, I was going to say with Centurions, uh, Jim Store, the battle group guy, holding this up to the microphone again. House of mm -hmm. 3D wargaming books. That's right. Ooh, uh, scary, eh, kids? He mentions the point that the Centurion um, actually never fired a shot in anger with the British Army. No. Ah, uh, Korea uh were they centurions or were they sherman yes okay well i guess he got yes. that wrong but he they, said they, they did they did sterling service in the engine river the centurions mm -hmm. okay i'm gonna have to look that up as we talk but what he does say was that if you want to read about if you want centurions in combat look at uh, the iranian army because the iranian army used them in the uh, iran iraq war they had they had a lot of centurions in their order about well the iran iraq war like if if you're if you like eclectic selections of kit yeah the iran iraq war is the one to do sure because they started out you know with all this older stuff from both sides of the iron curtain and then they i'm under the impression their supply actually switched uh -huh. anyway yeah and and they were they were just buying it buying whatever they could and throwing it at the front and it was just because it's what a 10 year long war yeah, it was crazy. It was just, it was yeah. just apocalyptic. It was yeah. horrible. And we don't know anything about it. No, no, no I mean, because we 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 pissed off both both sides. So yeah. it's yeah. not like Western historians can go in and do any research. <laughs> and it's one of those wars. I think at the time people were quite happy, you know, um, with both sides losing. Really, you know. Yes, and unfortunately, the the West were backing Saddam. Mm -hmm. You know, and here he is. You know, he's throwing gas shells and stuff to Iranians, and it's like, yeah. Oh, yeah you know, but, but you know oh the iranians had the ayatollah and the you know islamic revolution so they're the bad guys mm -hmm. it's like well not in this case actually they're they're being invaded you know there's a lot of bad guys to go around 
Well, yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, the Middle East is just full of bad guys. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A lot of people, a lot of people be playing very cynical power politics, chess and exploiting no. whoever they can to, to yeah. pers- which is why I don't want to do Arab Israeli war. No, you know I mean, cause that'd be the classic with centurions. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's like, eh, you know, like now with the politics getting very, you know, like at least in the in the sixties and seventies, it was very clear, right? No. You know, young country fighting for survival. Hooray! We can all get behind that. And now it's like oh, it's yeah. getting very murky. You know. Yeah, it is. So I just want to. I, I'm I'm just going to be nice, cut and dried. Very very. You know, we'll 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 make we'll totally fictionalize it, and I can just have nice olive drab centurions blowing up T fifty fives. It'll be great. Yeah. And of course, thinking of Mantovia and Borderia, that makes me think of uh, Tintin, right? Because well, that, that's where I stole the name for, for, yeah. for Borderia. Yeah. I, I really should have come up with something else. And their but... dictator, Curvy Tosh. Yeah. I, I, I should have come up with something else. No, just steal it. It, it, sound, it sounded very Eastern European. It's good. It's absolutely good. And uh, yeah. I mean, those were great. I, I should really go out and read those again because I remember the. Um, you know, the Borderians had a bunch of German kit, right? And I think mm-hmm. there's one point where Tintin steals like an ME 109 or something. And, <laughs> yeah, it's very cool. As one, does. well, you know, Man- and Mantovia and Borderia were both were both absorbed into the into the Reich in 1936. Right, right, right. So, you know, they, the German German staff officers had to keep Borderian and Mantovian troops um, garrisoned separate from each other, or they would fight. Of course, yeah, yeah. Wow. Um, There's a deep, rich history here. Oh, there is. I'm, wait, I'm waiting for the Ospreys to be put out <laughs> right after Ukrainian tractors of 2022. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Or uh, you know, mattress uh, modifications to uh, Russian tanks, you know, yeah. those cages that they put on the roofs of their tanks. Yeah, that would be great. Well, what, what can I natter about? I want to natter tonight about playing a really old game that uh, I never really tried before. So uh, as I mentioned on Twitter last week, I went to what passes for our local war games club. And uh, there's a a guy called Charles that I've gotten chummy with. And uh, Charles and I are are a little more old school in some ways. A lot of the guys at the club are sort of of the new shiny uh, let's play it thing. So, um, and the store owner, God bless him, is... uh, you know, quite happy to feed their appetites, right? So, so uh, the last few weeks, um, everybody's been excited about uh, that samurai game, Test of Honor. Okay, well, it's is, not exactly new shiny. Well, it's new shiny to them, and mm-hmm. you know, it's. Uh, yeah. I don't know how long it's been out, um, but uh, two years. Yeah. Okay. Whatever. I played it once. It was kind of fun, and you know, if you like Kurosawa samurai movies, that was fun. But, you know, or or they're playing. Um, you know, Black Seas, the the Warlord games with the the uh, sailing ships and okay, yeah. And you know, I, Charles and I are are willing to try Clash of Arms or Clash of Spears, which is the ancient skirmish game that they're playing. Um, but um, you know, I, I said to him, well, "What else do you like to play?" And he said, "Well, I'm kind of old school, and I I used to play a lot of DBA." And I said, "Well, how, why don't you teach me? I'll show up next week." So you know, Charles showed up, and the uh, I. I as I was, you know, saying we were talking to um, uh, Chris, you know, I've seen the DBA tournaments at Hot Lead, but it's not something you watch really, right? Yeah. And so there was like a little bit of felt that we marked. He marked out the playing area with some green painter's tape. And then uh, <clears throat> he had a 
you know, a toolkit and he took out these two battered 15 mil armies that had been, you know, had the crap played out of them and they're well loved okay. figures. Mm-hmm. Crusader army and Byzantine um, army. And terrain was a little bit of battered green felt for a couple of forests and a little hill made out of, you know, two bits of box board with a little bit of flocking sprinkled on them. And they looked exactly like two bits of cut out box board. You know, is, which, yeah, this is your, your classic, your classic DBA tournament. <laughs> setup. Yeah. Where you don't really give a crap about the, yeah, it, it's just supposed to, it's supposed to be transportable, go down fast. Yeah. Get moved around fast for the next game setup, And, yeah. you know, you and know, I, I think that's only. probably what Phil Barker wanted, right? He wanted a game that could be played in a pub. You know, having since gone down a, a big U-hole, a YouTube rabbit hole about uh, DBA videos, I know there's people oh. have theories about how to make your DBA game look um, pretty, and that's mm-hmm. fine. But the the idea that you just have 12 units and that's it uh, was really interesting because you can mm-hmm. get your head around that. And uh, Yeah, some army lists, there's, there's, you know, there's alternates that you can swap out. Yep. You know, yep. so if you want to do the complete army, you end up having to build like 15 units, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, and as I think I've said before, I have been flirting with um, uh, a set of rules called ADLG, which is a, I guess that would be a successor to the, one of the bigger DBA variants like DBM or something, where you've got yeah. armies divided into three wings. Um, but it's the same basic idea that you get so many impetus points or command points yeah. or whatever you want to call them. And, uh, you have to allocate them if you want to move or fight a unit. And uh, the more your your battle line gets fragmented, the less control you have over it, which is probably very, uh, very accurate. And then a lot of it is just, you know, very much, it's very abstract. It's, you know, flanking and so forth and mm-hmm. massing units. And very familiar, if, you know, to somebody like me who grew up playing Hex Encounter games. But uh, I had a lot of fun. Well, good. I mean, it is, it is it's, I've played it a few times and I should probably revisit it because, mm-hmm. you know, then I got real, really heavily into ancients and got really into a lot of the details and stuff. And DBA was just you know, too abstract for me and too, you know, and the, the tournament play aspect still bugs me, you know, because to me, armies don't, armies don't evolve in a vacuum. No, so they, they evolve in response to their opponents and the terrain they're, they're, fighting across so you know having these a historical tournament matchups kind of and i know some some tournaments are very much of all you know the the theme is biblical or the theme is rome and its enemies or the theme is the middle ages and then at least you're kind of people at roughly the same technology levels and right right you know that kind of thing which you know is is a way to alleviate it um, but what I think it's really cool for is campaign games. Yeah, yeah. Right for resolve, you know, you have your you have your map board of whatever, and yeah. you resolve the bat. You know, you're moving your army counters around, then you resolve the battles on a little DBA setup, uh-huh. and then you can play a campaign in like an afternoon. Yeah, yeah. You, know, you can play the Year of the Four Emperors in an afternoon, uh-huh. and that's to me that's a really exciting idea. Right. Um, right. Wim Wordshorn who used to run games at hot lead when it was um, down the hill at the Victorian Inn. Uh, he had one called protector of the realm, which was basically Kingmaker, uh-huh. but um, he did a really nice big board and you know, instead of a little county, he had like nice little, you know, uh, one 1200 
cogs for the naval units and um and you moved your armies around and, and we and you had kind of a modified dba for resolving the battles mm-hmm. and you had very nice very nice little terrain tiles of beautiful little terrain pieces um and you, know, you weren't always fighting 12 elements 12 elements because of mm-hmm. course with kingmaker you're building bigger armies and followings and all that kind of stuff so you you might have an asymmetrical battle but you know it was a little nicer than the very cut and dried um kind of nasty way of resolving battles when you play kingmaker yeah yeah so but it was a beautiful game like whim you know whims really put a lot of you know thought into the into the aesthetics of it Mm-hmm. And it was and and I, one question with with the DBA scenes, I can't understand why twenty five millimeter isn't bigger with DBA. And I, somebody was saying it is because you know new twenty eight millimeter figures don't fit on a sixty millimeter wide base. Yeah, I I think that that which, could be. You know, and then and some people say, well, we just use, we just use eighty millimeter wide elements then, and use our bigger scale twenty eight millimeter figures, and it works fine. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, which yeah, probably would. You You'd know. have to double the playing area, I guess. Or, yeah. Or enlarge it, but yeah, yeah, I suppose. Yeah. That would. But I mean, if if I was if I was going to do a you know be dedicated DBA, I'd have you know I'd I'd I'd, I'd um, posh up my terrain. Yeah. I'd have a nice little tote with my nice little you know terrain elements and hills and forest elements and stuff. And well, that's where something like a cigar box battle mat would come in handy, right? Yeah. Like why why play on a piece of felt when if you could get a nice little battle mat? Um, but the the thing that I find interesting about it, partly it's just the we we talked before about how as we get older we start liking simpler rules. Mm-hmm. That's why I like Seven Days in the River Run. Yeah, yeah. But the idea that you could throw an army together really quickly. So, um, you know, one of the things I love about wargamers is that we're we tend to be pretty generous. And and when um, I mentioned that I was interested in DBA. Somebody else in the group said, "Well, you know, I've got these, um, I've got these uh, War of the Roses figures." Oh, there you go. Uh, I don't really want them, so would you like them? And I said, "How much do you want?" And he said, "No, you can have them." So, like, I've got a little Wars of the Roses army in a box here, and these are just a bunch of hobbler guys, I guess. They mm-hmm. look like they're wearing tin pots on their heads, and they've yeah. got ears. But yeah. it, um, you know, these would be good. Probably up into like they would do the Wars of the Roses. They could I could paint them up as a um, um, you know an Italian city states army from the 15th century. And when you only need 12 bases, and if if you're doing it in 15s, you could paint an army well, pretty quickly. Yeah, I mean guys would you know like there are some guys they've got all kinds of armies because yeah. they just no oh, let's do you know this is you know this is the army I'm interested in right now so let's do you know. These guys and just and then yeah you can you can get that nice little sampler, you know, it's yeah. kind of like tapas for wargaming. Yeah, that's a great. You idea. know, or dim sum. Dim sum. Um, I just don't want to eat the chicken feet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, but, we you know, talking... I, I can certainly understand. I can certainly see the appeal in that. Yeah. Instead of you know, oh my god, I've got three thousand you know Napoleonic Russians to paint to finish my army. Oh, uh, who would who would be that crazy? Yeah. Well, I don't have three thousand. I've only got like hundred or so. Like well, I mean, it's good to have the big projects and then the small projects, right? So, yeah, uh, yeah. You know, which is which is why I've got you printing um, World War II chips for me. I have finished all the Americans, I think, as of tonight. Oh, anchors away, boys! Uh, now I could love do, a sailor. I could do all three. 
I could do all three variants of the uh, Fletcher destroyers, but I think you're just going to get one. All uh, three? The, there were three variants in the file? I didn't no, see the it. file that you sent me, when you open it up, it has uh, three different kinds of Fletchers. Oh. So I don't I know. Didn't I didn't know I, the I made, Fletcher had different variants, but. I don't, I don't know, honestly, if you'd look at them, if you could tell, but I will probably do all three for you if I have time. Um, but yeah, they, they look so tempting, and it, sometimes they make me think, uh, I would like to find some STL files for World War One Dreadnoughts. Or, um, or Russo Japanese pre dreadnoughts. I mean, I yeah, know. I know some. Well, in the place I got the files for you, he's got some older, some older, he's got a lot of newer stuff too. But, mm -hmm. um, still that, that Wargaming 3D, there's guys on there that have got uh, American Civil War, yeah, ships. Yeah. Um, probably if you look for World War One dreadnoughts, oh, they're out there. I found or them. pre dreadnoughts, you'd find I them. I yeah, some of the, those ships are pretty wacky. They are. They are. I just haven't downloaded them yeah. because when hotels went to war. <laughs> yeah. It's like, yeah. Let's have let's have ten different calibers of gun on our ship. That's right. Yeah. And, you know? and yeah. And then French uh designs in particular from the eighteen nineties, like, you know, let's have circular hulls or let's have rams. Let's yeah. let's let's put a ram on a on a dreadnought, pre dreadnought, because it's fun. Well, you know, that's uh, that was all because of the Battle of Lissa in the it was between the Italians and the Austrians in the 60, 1860s. Right. Where there was a successful ram uh -huh. and it was a very devastating attack, I think, because the ship that was attacked wasn't armored. So everybody will. Wow. Ram steamships with ram bows is the hot new thing. Yes. Yeah. yeah. You know, like. I was, I've just been reading um, Rising Star Setting Sun, Guadalcanal campaign from November 42 until 43, the first volume, which I read last year, uh -huh. which got me thinking about destroyers. And uh, yeah, so, you know, the first battle of the first naval battle of Guadalcanal, you know, the American Admiral didn't understand, he didn't understand the capabilities of his radar. Uh -huh. And not all of his ships had the surface search radar. Right. Uh, so they weren't using it very well. And it was a very, and it was a very dark overcast night. And so the Japanese uh, lookouts couldn't see the American fleet. And, and so these guys were like right on top of each other. Mm -hmm. And it was, you know, destroyers in the lead. And then they're like, Holy shit! That's a you know that's a that's a Japanese battleship like two thousand yards away. Can we please open fire? You know, and the and the American admiral unfortunately was was very hesitant and wasn't he wasn't sure what was going on. So he's being he's being way too cautious. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and so and so it was just it was like a drunken fight in a in a darkened bar. Like mm -hmm. these ships were just like the, the the squadrons were just going right through each other and. You know, this one um, Japanese destroyer got off a torpedo attack on a on a uh, American cruiser, and the Japanese uh, captain says, "And I heard the four thunks as my torpedoes hit the hull, and I was like, oh, you idiot! We fired too close. Like they were that close, the torpedoes didn't have time to arm. Mm, mm. You know, like they were, you know, American destroyers were like frantically getting out of the way before they got run over by these Japanese." heavy battleships and cruisers and yeah and they're they're just fighting for their lives they got they they got 
punished horribly. Although they did stop the Japanese reinforcement conflict from getting to Guadalcanal, so it was a bit of a yeah, yeah, it's a bit of a pyrrhic victory. It's an amazing campaign because the American Navy is incredibly resilient, right? I mean, they get they yes. get pounded, and they come back every time and they learn. Uh, right? Yeah, and and you know, and, and the the writer of the book, I'm reading, you know, he talks about how you know the the um, Japanese combined fleet, you know, with the Yamato is sitting in Truck Harbor, and Yamato was getting called was getting referred to by the Imperial Japanese Navy as the hotel mm-hmm. <laughs> because it's just sitting there. Mm. You know, it's the biggest freaking warship in the world and it's just parked and yeah. Yamamoto is sitting in his cabin writing haiku um, because he's like no no we are waiting for the decisive battle with the American Navy and it's like no the decisive battle is happening in the Solomons around yeah. Yeah. Guadalcanal yeah. like you just aren't realizing it and the Americans yeah. were but they, you, they just you, kept and they just kept coming back. It was a total intelligence failure on the part of the Japanese. Right. But do you take your your battleship into a uh, um, an island chain re- re- where there's relatively little room to maneuver and where hey, gone go south? Yeah, right. Go go out. You don't you don't go down the slot. You go to the south or you go to the north and yeah yeah. Like and then, they're, and then they're concerned about the the fact the Americans still have a, uh, an airfield capability, right? So. Yeah, Henderson Field became the unsinkable carrier, just like Midway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the Americans were, and the Americans were very quick in realizing that you know we have to push aircraft and aviation fuel onto Henderson Field, yeah. even though you know the Japanese are still on the north end of the island trying to contest control. Right. Um, yeah. You know, and they lost. God, they lost the Hornet and they lost the Wasp. Yeah. And it was like right, those air group, you know. Any plane that can still fly or is still in the air, go to Guadalcanal yeah, and yeah. reinforce the air group. And so, yeah, so they 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 had this massive air group um, that extended their their air cover, and so they were. Right. You know, and you you have pilots flying off Guadalcanal who are suffering from dysentery and on half rations. And, oh yeah, you know, it's like it's it's an yeah, story. Yeah, the 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 um, commander of the air group was saying, you know, we're 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 trying to fly like pilots, but when we're not in the air, we're living like infantry. Yeah. You know, yeah. They're dugouts with dugouts with, with, you know, ponchos over top. Yeah. And yeah. it's not very restful. No, no. It's, uh, yeah. It's pretty impressive. It's I'm trying to remember the name of a book I read about Guadalcanal a couple of years ago. It was uh, uh, Neptune's Inferno. No, maybe, maybe it was uh, epic story. The Guadalcanal story. Goodness. So, yeah, I, I kind of, I kind of think it, it, like, it's, it was the decisive naval battle. Yeah, yeah. Like it really, it really turned turned things, and the Americans learned a lot of really hard lessons. And then they they came out of that, you know, when they get to, um, you know, the Marshall Islands and and the Philippine Sea and and Leyte Gulf. It's like they're they're firing on all cylinders, yeah. and they're just kicking the Japanese around the houses because yeah. they know what they know what they're doing now. You know, you got and then you have things like you know Taffy Thirty Three, uh, which was like bunch of a bunch of escort carriers and some some destroyers right and they're up in the north you know providing air cover and flank security for the invasion fleet on the philippines and then it's like oh here comes you know some battleships and heavy cruisers and all this scary crap coming in to try and you know be like wolves amongst the sheep with the with the the invasion convoy and yeah, and the 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 command the, the destroyer captain's just like right, like 
you know, make smoke screens, fire off all your torpedoes whenever you get a target and just zoom around and fire shells and these Jeep carriers fire, you know, like launched everything, <laughs> you know, and they just, they just harassed the crap of it, you know, and, and the, the Japanese uh, commanders thought they were facing a much bigger opponent and they turned around and left. Mm. That's amazing. Yeah. The J- J- Japanese Naval commanders are very cautious. Yeah. Well, you know, I think by after Midway, they, you, you learn that, you know, a really bad day is a really, really bad day. Right. Yeah. You, you lose your capital assets and your strategic capability in, in, you know, three pyres of smoke as your, you know, prize carriers are exploding around you. And you're like, what the hell? Yeah. <laughs> this did not go well. Yeah. Where, you know, the Americans could, oh, we have, you know, let's get our damaged carrier back to, you know, Pearl Harbor or, yeah. you know, if we have to San Francisco and it's back, back at sea in a couple of months. Yeah. 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 I wonder how many U.S. naval officers are studying Guadalcanal in light of what a war with China would look like, because it seems to me there's all sorts of analogies. Hmm. But okay. I mean, it comes to you know, like the, the 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 big thing with you know with the Guadalcanal, the Solomon Islands campaign is is logistics. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the whole Japanese effort was trying to reinforce their troops on Guadalcanal, mm-hmm. and you know they couldn't bring in big transports. They tried that, and then like they lost eight out of 13 transports uh-huh. and 5,000 men. Yes. Yeah. It's staggering. You know, uh, to American airstrikes because of course Henderson field was only an hour away. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> you know, like these guys fly off, bomb the Japanese land, go, you know, they, they're flying like five, eight sorties a day. Yeah. And then, you know, and then the five ships that did land supplies, the Americans bombed the beaches and blew up all the supplies. Yeah. Like, 50 they they only got 50 tons of supplies to their army on guadalcanal yeah and so they're trying okay well let's run let's run in with destroyers carrying troops and there's this admiral tanaka who commanded a destroyer division and he was like this is a bad idea because we're we're burning a lot of fuel for very little return Mm -hmm. but it was the only way to get reinforcements and supplies in because you know submarines couldn't do it because they're too small and barges are too slow and you know like it was just, and it was the American air power keeping, you know, limiting the, the, the Japanese resupply efforts. Right. Right. You know, and the Americans, you know, the Americans uh, on the ground saying we need aircraft, we need aviation fuel. And because we have to keep these, we have to keep these guys on the ropes. Right. And that, that would be true of a, of a war over Taiwan, right? Whichever side loses control of the seas can't supply uh, either the defense or the offense, right? So hmm. the Chinese could land a, a, a force on Taiwan, and then if they lose control of the airs and seas, then they can't reinforce them, right? Or vice yeah, versa. Yeah, well, exactly. Vice versa. The Americans can't send reinforcements to Taiwan. It's all over. So hope it never. hope it doesn't happen, to be perfectly honest. but Well, yeah, I think the Chinese are um, were their market, right? Yeah. They yeah. go to war with us and suddenly they're not selling anything. No. Their economy falls apart. Yeah. So, and they, they have to be watching the situation in the Ukraine as well, right? I would think. Yeah, their, their support for Russia seems to have really backed off. Right. Gotten very cool. Yeah. And they're also learning what a, what a, a motivated defense can look like in the 21st century, right? Yeah. Yes. I really hope the Canadian Air Forces is looking at 
you know, drones. Yeah, for sure. You know, drones flying off of ships, drones flying in support of tanks. Like, yeah. You know, considering you got like, you know, um, Ukrainian, you know, volunteer groups, you know, you know, with their civilian drones and they're modifying them and they're like 3D printing fins to go, on to, to go on to grenades. Yeah, it's crazy. So they can drop them like aerial bombs like right through the sunroof of a car filled know, with Russian was, soldiers. Was, it was like, that's amazing. That was a really bad day for those guys. Yeah. Yeah. yeah well, it's really brilliant. Yeah. You know, and, and, you know, good signals intelligence. Um, do you see the video of the artillery strike on the Russian headquarters? Yes. Yeah, like, I wasn't was... sorry. You know, oh, we a bunch of Russian generals got killed. Very, yeah. very sad. Very sad. I mean, you know, maybe those guys are happy because it ended the PowerPoint early. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> you know, all right, comrades, here's my here's my plan for, for continuing the war. You know, slide one of 350. That's right, yeah. And then, you know, the explosion starts. and like, oh, thank God. Yeah, just jump into the slit. Let's try and run for the slit trenches. That's and right. you know, I'd rather have death from Ukrainians than death from PowerPoint. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, this is probably a, a good point to start wrapping up. Um, you got uh, possibly three thousand Prussians still to paint. Uh no, uh, Prussians. I've only got after these boys. I've only got one box yep. with a couple, and you know, there's a couple extra sprues of command, so that'll give me three more battalions. Mm-hmm. So three battalions of Prussian musketeers and then a six figure group of, of the volunteer Jaegers that come with the Perry plastic set. Mm -hmm. And then I've got um, 12 battalions of Russian infantry and six Russian artillery pieces. So a little bit more. Yeah. You know, but these are only 16 figure battalions, not... 36 or 48 figure battalions because mm -hmm. i i honestly can't see the point in i mean i that's why i, li I like 16 figure battalions because it, it's it's bulky enough that it looks like a, a battalion right like 12 figure battalions are a little thin um you know although i certainly play with them with my seven years war stuff because that's what we're in for for and told us to do and empire told me to do that too um like 12 are a little, are a little thin. Yeah. But like 24 is just, it, it, it's too big. And you know, these guys that do 36 and 48 figure battalions. It's like, are like, what are you trying to prove buddy? Yeah. You know, it's like, Oh, well, you know, if it, it, it's got to have both colors and it's got to have, you know, the, 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 the grenadier and the light company. And it's like, well, okay, that's cool. Um, I guess. But yeah. if you're, if you're, you know, if you're playing a set of rules, that is, you know, based on stands. Right. You know, if you're not worrying about number of figures firing and removing figure casualties, yeah. then, you know, six, 16 is nice. You got four stands. So you can be in, you know, column, attack column, square, line, whether it's got four figures on it or six or eight. Uh -huh. Doesn't matter. Yeah. Doesn't matter. At it all. doesn't matter. Yeah, you know, and those extra, those extra figures are just extra effort. They, they take up a lot of real estate. Yeah. Scott's Napoleonics used to be organized in battalions of 24 and 36 for the Austrians. Yeah. And it just took up way too much real estate on the, on this day. And I've got a big table, you know, as you can see behind, behind me, it was, it was very awkward maneuvering these massive units around uh, where, you know, I convinced them to let's, let's scale it down to 16. Cause that's all I'm going to paint is 16 figure battalions. Yeah. 
Um, so he's done that too. When he brings his French over to fight me, he, he brings 16 figure units and, and it, it just, it fits better, works better on the table. I think depending on the period, you know, the number of figures on a base, a mass effect does look good. So this is like a stand of, um, ah, yes, Prussians. So I've got, I've tried to work six guys to a base. Mm-hmm. Just because I think that base, uh, it's a uh, 50 millimeter square, I think. Okay. See, I put two cavalrymen on a 50. Right? Yeah. And I would, I would put two fifty. I would two, put two cavalry on the same base. Mm-hmm. So for all my, for my seven years war stuff, I'm, I have a standard base size. So this is, you know, this is my base size. Yeah. And it's just a question of, I could put one gun or six infantry or two cavalry on the base. Yeah, it works. Yeah. The rules I'm using, like, I think most rules now, it's just how many dice per base do you get depending on what formation it's in. Mm-hmm. Like a Sam yeah. Mustafa style game, if you've got, uh, you know, if you've got four bases in line, then they would get so many dice per base. But if they're in column or mass, then it's the number of dice per base is reduced. Yeah. Um, and that's fine. Uh, it's just a question of how many figures do you want to get a, a satisfying aesthetic, right? And, well, and, that, and that's why I, I based the way I did, because um, four on a 40 by 40, yeah. I used that with my with my medieval stuff. Yeah. And... You know, I could just use two bases for a group of eight for sharp practice. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, exactly. Exactly. I'll do my, I'll do my, you know, like for my Bavarian infantry, uh, the light companies are just three guys on a base. Mm-hmm. So they're, yeah. they're a little more irregular and skirmishy. And doing that, I grab two light companies and I have a group of six skirmishers for sharp practice. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. You know, that's just. And then all you need are some individual base figures for. Um... Yeah, I, I, I cream out extra extra command, uh, you know, NCOs and officers for, for big men. Yeah, there you go. Well, my friends, uh, we're going to wrap up at this point. Um, we are looking forward to, uh, so it's been a month since we, re- we released a, a Canadian Wargamer podcast in the wild. So I uh, should have this ready in a couple of days. So I wanted to apologize to our, um, our guest, uh, Pierre-Yves. Mm-hmm. Yes, because uh, being, uh, during the interview, uh, I think I was referring to him as JP, because uh, I was probably confusing him with a guy I used to know in the military called Jean Pierre. Everybody called him J JP. So uh, sorry, Monsieur Tuel, uh, but um, that was a great guest and a great interview, and uh, we're really glad we had him. I'm not sure what our interviews are like going forward. I have a, a couple in mind, and we'll say more about them in future. So. Mm-hmm. But the next podcast, we'll have finished Larday in Hamilton, and we'll talk about that. Mm-hmm. I'm going to spend uh, this month getting uh, my General Darme uh, scenario uh, ready, and I'm going to try to take it to the club in Barrie and run it a few times so I'm more confident. Um, nice. Yeah, so... Because yeah, you, you haven't... Have you game mastered it? Uh, no, mastered I am a game master virgin. Ooh. Yeah, but well, I am... I mean, it's, it's a friendly crowd at, at Larday. Yeah, they are. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, I'm on sabbatical now for the summer. And the only thing that's cut into my painting time, James, is uh, a little four-legged puppy. Oh, Brody. Yeah. Brody. Brody the pupster. But uh, he's a lot of fun, but he does. It's like having a, a an infant in the house. It's, uh, you what? know, it's With quiet. It's, it's too quiet. What are you chewing on? Are you pooping? You know, so. Anyway. Were, there no, were there no mature dogs that needed rescuing? We wanted a puppy. And you know what? Puppies are fun. It's... Oh. Oh, okay. I just, you know, there's a reason why older guys like us don't become fathers <laughs> of infant, or at least smart older guys. 
unless we rich, have rich ones who can afford who can afford nannies. Yeah, and and they're going to afford you know supermodel wives young enough to be their daughters. Yeah, yeah, they can afford they can afford to be a father at our age. But, because they can probably afford alimony as well for their three previous yeah. wives. Yeah, yeah, the rest of the rest of us though who have to like get up and you know clean up after these little people and have the energy to chase them around and give them all the love and attention. Well, um, you're going to get that when you see your grandkids. I'm happy for you, man. Well, that's why I think I might be too exhausted to drive to Hamilton the day after. (laughs) You can tell me about Larde and I can tell you about grandchildren. I will. And we have uh, we have not yet done the prize draw for our Bob Merch uh, our Ukrainian Cossacks simply because I just haven't been organized. So, friends, we're going to give you, the listener, just a, a few more chances to uh, leave a comment telling us uh, that you listen to us and that you'd like some of these figures. And um, you can leave a comment either on our Facebook page or on our YouTube page or on um you can just email us. There's lots of places to find us. And uh, yeah, we'll do a draw next uh, next time, and that'll be exciting. We have, um, you know, we don't ask you guys for anything. We, we do this podcast uh, for fun. It's uh, kind of a passion project. Um, and uh, we never, we'll never stick our hand out for money, but uh, we would just appreciate it if you would uh, tell us uh, that you listen to us. And we'd also appreciate it if you tell somebody else that you listen to the Canadian Wargamer podcast. And uh, yeah spread the word if you are from another part of canada and you got really upset when chris robinson said i don't know anything about what's happening in western or eastern canada uh tell us what you're doing um yeah ask, ask us to come on the that's, show tell us about your event and uh, that's what we're here for yeah eh? yeah so we're like shining a big old like it, uh, it'd be beauty eh? beauty yeah like we're shining a big old spotlight on you ace all right okay so this is a good night for me good night for me all right Take care, folks. We'll uh, take off, hosers. Take off. Eh? We'll let the music play us out. <laughs>